0: The Primus name is, is a very boring story. I wish we had something clever to say, you know. We used to be called Primate, and this other band called us up and said, hey, we're going to stick our lawyer on you if you don't change your name, because we're the primates and we have a record out. And so we had to change it. So uh, we looked through the dictionary, and the root for primate was primus. It comes from the Latin root primus. So we said, hey, hey. Fishing is kind of our uh, our uh, way of keeping our sanity in this turbulent hell world of music, the music business. I don't know, I've always been a big fan of cartoons. Like I said, I read the Walt Disney thing yesterday. Tex Avery, got my Tex Avery button going right
1: here.
0: Uh, there's a lot of interesting things in the book about Walt Disney. Well, in the book it said that he, he he was cremated, but I, I heard he's frozen as well. In fact, he's pretty amazing guy <laughs> <laughs> one neat guy what one hell of a guy he was, very neat. he was a neat guy so we did a college tour it was our first tour it was a college tour and what are the kids like in american colleges these days i mean in the 60s they were starting to get quite radical then in the 80s they were getting very conservative yeah the old uh, fraternities were on the upswing Um, it's getting to be more like more like the 60s i i would say Um, and i would i would attribute a lot of that to a lot of the kids that are in college right now are children of the uh you know all the uh, flower power people of the 60s so i mean i mean everything goes in cycles so we might have a radical cycle coming up here should be nice. I went to high school with Kirk Hammond from Metallica. That is my claim to fame. That's the only thing that is making this band popular at all. And Kirk beat them up one day. We know game. Kirk Hammett from Metallica. You must be glad now that you never joined the Metallica in that case. No way. I could be hanging out with James and Kirk Hamster and all those guys right now. Instead of us losers. Instead of these bastards. Oh. Um, oh, it would have been fun, but, uh, Here I am. Want fish chips? How's that?
2: Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents Run the Gamut, Season Three. Your intrepid hosts hosts, not hosts, go through their favorite artists, bands, albums, paraphernalia, uh, and we talk about it. In this episode, we are going to be talking about one of my nominations. It is a band from our neck of the woods, Northern California, the East Bay of San Francisco, or you'll find them usually on a fisherman's boat thwomping around on the bass, it is the mighty band Primus. Tonight, or today, or this morning, or this afternoon, whenever you plan to listen to this episode, we're first going to go through our personal history of the band Primus, Wes Claypool, Larry Lalonde, Timothy, Herb Alexander, Brain Mantia, And the rest. Hopefully it won't be a three-hour tour, but uh, you never know from us. So we're going to go through our personal history, then. The band history. Kind of giving you a little bit of why we like this band. Why I like this band. I don't know if these two do. But I'll convince them at the end of this hour. Mark my words.
3: Oh, I like it. it Mark, mark your words.
2: And who am I? yes a little wordplay a little uh little fancy um lexiconic grigy <laughs> i am mark yeah. and these are my words <laughs> hear me my hear words me my now. yours.
4: these are my words
2: hear me now um but yes this is mark i don't know if i'm using my full name on this episode or this season or this show to be that for that matter who knows what the power of google will unearth But I am not alone, friends and neighbors and heroes. I am with my co-creators, my co-hosts, my co-conspirators, my cohorts. That would be Stephen Earl and Eric. Hello there.
4: Happy Happy. to be here tonight.
2: Happy to have you. Happy to have you in attendance.
4: I've I've been looking forward to this one since we were 14 years old. And we weren't nice. even friends when I was 14, so that's, that's crazy.
2: It is truly destiny. And then, Steven Earl, who's that to your right? I want to say that's Eric Monroe with his blazer, with his patched elbow jackets.
4: Go ahead. And, tonight, tonight would be an appropriate night for him to bust out some of his old silly hats he used to wear, <laughs> his old man professor jackets. That look oh. would go well oh, with the yeah. uh, band we're talking about. Sometimes Pipe. the band themselves would dress that way. Sometimes the fans would dress themselves that yes. way. Well, happy to be here, fellows. I
3: definitely have been scouring, scouring the archives for old, old poetry and ancient dialects that, that contain references to these Primus songs. Discussing
2: Poetry and prose, they say. Poetry right. and prose, of course. Dip, 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 dip. If, if one of the three of us really got into steampunk, I feel like Eric would be uh, guilty of that.
4: Well, he's right. You know, he's right next door to, he's right down the street from that yeah, shit. Yeah, with, I uh, got a, like a. The industrial like, stuff.
3: I got an outboard motor on my hat that I pull and it it, it flicks uh <laughs> it flicks my glasses lenses depending upon the sunlight of the day. Yeah, it's.
4: It will get, you know, we'll talk a little about steampunk a little bit with uh, some of the fashion choices that uh, Les makes <laughs> and later in life. But it's interesting, you know, some of the stuff that Eric is into is at the nexus that's steampunks right down the street from. But uh, the guy we're talking about tonight, Les Claypool, I've looking at my notes, he is at the center or primus. But him, more importantly, of so many music styles and movements and people, it's pretty crazy. That's uh, looking forward to it.
2: And yes, wearing steampunk
4: goggles at one point is one of those things.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if. Uh... Any one of us wore a bowler hat, however, I, I believe it would be, uh, Stephen Earl, but that's just me. I'm more along the line. I had a silly, I had a silly, had a silly hat phase. I did. <laughs> oh yeah. The troubadour phase, the, uh, the drunk at a light pole, Tom Waits, Helen at the moon phase. That would be Stephen Earl, but thank you folks for tuning in, tuning out and dropping out and dropping in. Um, Tonight, we're going to be talking about Primus, and then the next episode, we're going to be going track by track through Tales from the Punch Bowl. So, do your homework and get ready because we expect everyone to be ready for the pop quiz that will be certainly uh, to be done. And uh, no one goes further until everyone passes 100%. You want hear me? But before we well, do for, that,
4: so in, for our homework then. <clears throat> I think tonight we should dispense with all other extracurricular activities and just focus on Primus. What say you guys?
2: I mean, uh, yeah, we got a lot to cover. Um, Primus, especially Les Claypool, is what you would consider prolific, and we want to kind of give everyone a cursory, a survey of Primus' history, along with Les Claypool, who is really the mastermind of Primus. It's not a like a singular effort, like Trent Reznor or you know, those type of bands, but uh Les Claypool is certainly the nucleus. So before we no housekeeping, I'm I'm i guessing. Yeah, we're, it's a, we're
3: an overstuffed pig as it is. Let's let's the house is kept. Let's just house sit down kept. and start start All right.
4: eating.
2: All right. Well to start it out, before we go into the band history, I would like to know our personal history with Primus. And as I was the one nominating, it would be Rather rude for me to start out with my personal history. I will start it out with Steven. Give me your bona fides when it comes to Primus.
4: My bona fides with Primus are right behind yours. But um, let's see. So I'm 40 years old. And I'm getting into quote unquote alternative music in the 90s. And Primus was on the radio quite a bit. I remember hearing your Jerry was a race car driver's. You're Mr. Crinkles. Uh, maybe John the Fisherman. I doubt it. Seeing a couple videos here and there. Seeing a couple videos on with uh, some Butthead. And I liked Primus. And then, yes, Winona's Big Brown Beaver came out in 95. And that would have been uh, freshman to sophomore year of high school. And uh, I thought that song was uh, pretty good. Um, but I... I I decided I liked that band, but I didn't really know where to start. And then I I made, I became friends with a guy at high school named Mark. And we started discovering we like a lot of the same music and stuff. And of course, there was a couple of bands that each of us have heard of that the other guy knew more about. And for me, I was a student of Primus from Mark and his uh, CD and tape collection at the time. You probably could find every album on either CD or cassette and side projects up to ninety five, ninety six, over at Mark's house. So I would uh, probably I borrowed them. I devoured them, decided I was a huge Primus fan. We became uh, uh, Primus was a band that we bonded over. Primus is a good band to have be a, uh, a band that you share with your friends when you're young, like a teenager, early twenties, because there are so many inside jokes and, the whole atmosphere of the goofiness of Primus, I think it lends itself to friendship. Um, like there's like just su- saying some of their song lyrics out loud and stuff could be an inside joke between you and your buddies. And I have very fond memories of all that. And as the years go- grew by into my mid twenties, I followed Primus quite a bit. Um, kind of drifted off much like you drift away from the things you really like when you're a kid, when you're an adult. certain science fiction or comic books or something at a certain point, I probably decided Primus needed to not, it wasn't conscious, but I just, I quit listening. And whenever I find myself revisiting them, I was always happy. I did. And, uh, spoilers for the podcast, doing a deep dive into them again, reminded me not only that I always liked this band, but they're one of my favorite bands, but it all started back in high school when I became friends with Mark, who was, much more educated on them than I was, and he showed me the way. And uh, the I, I kind of came into it right before the Brown album came out. And when the Brown album came out, there was all this like, this is the album without her, but I don't know, man. And to me, I was like, this album's great. I don't know what anybody's problem is, but it was interesting to me that that was my first memory of being into an artist and having a membership change create a uh, I don't know, a new cycle, if you will, <laughs> just, of h- how people viewed uh, the art. Um,
2: there definitely was a schism.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I remember it very specifically. I remember talking with you and a uh, uh, high school guy, a little older than us, Louie, among others. And I never I'll get into it later. But I, I was like, oh, the Brown album's great. And the, the Brown album, the Brown album was the first Primus album that came out for me after I was already a fan. You know how that, you know, you get into a band and you get to go backwards. So then when that first album comes out for you that you're a fan of when it comes out, uh, that's always a neat feeling. Um, But yeah, uh, been a fan for most of my life. Came and gone, but they have a very special place in my heart. And it all started when I was a teenager. And I've seen them multiple times uh, with you guys a couple of times and various side projects throughout the years. Uh, when I was younger, Les Claypool was extremely entertaining to me and anything Les Claypool, I, I gave a shot. Um, he was just larger than life, but at the same time, an accessible character. He's so unique and so funny and creative and prolific. It was extremely appealing to me when I was a kid. And as I got older, uh, one of a kind guy. So there's your long winded answer that it all began in high school, driving around in your truck with you listening to cassette tapes.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I look back on those, uh, memories pretty fondly. I mean, those were the, uh, party days for me. Uh, Eric, what was your personal history with Primus and, or Les Claypool?
3: Sure. Sure. <clears throat> well, actually Steve, you 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 encapsulate it pretty well, but I feel like, um, what expresses this even better than what I could say are lyrics by Peter, Paul, and Mary. He puffed the magic dragon, lived by the sea. He frolicked in the autumn mist in the land called Honolise. He puffed the magic dragon his Primus. And this magical world with crazy characters, Mr. Kringle and Bob C. Cock. You know, you love this stuff as a kid. It appeals to you. Just like you said, you're a 13-year-old boy. At the time, I was 12. Got really into them. I was my family was moving from Sacramento to Tucson, Arizona. At my going away party, all my friends bought me every Primus CD up to that—that that, up to Pork Soda, which was out at the time—and uh I was stoked. It was—it just really appealed to me. Like you said, the inside jokes, the weirdness. I love that it was like the opposite of cool. Like it was, in a way, it was even like more counterculture than grunge because it was so not interested in image. And I thought that was that was very. cool. But then. You know, Little Jackie Paper. He loved that rascal puff. Brought him strings and sealing wax and other fancy stuff. I gave Primus a lot of attention. Moved to Arizona. That was what connected me to Greg Walgast, friend of the show. Uh, we love that goofy shit. And like you said, we had, you know, that, we'd, we'd, that guy was pretty bizarre, Gus. We'd say when something weird happened at school or quoting Primus lyrics to each other. Saw Primus three times, twice in the 90s, one more recently with you guys. And by recently, I mean 20 years ago. God. Okay, uh... But then, you know, uh, as the, as the song goes on, dragons live forever, but not so little boys. And uh, the, I, you know, my taste changed a little bit. And I was maybe relating to the, 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 the goofy little stories about people that Les Claypool knew the spronky guitar riffs. Maybe it just wasn't appealing to me anymore. Maybe the sound there, the direction their music was going wasn't. And I kind of, uh, you know, I, I, as the, as the song says, Puff retreated back into his cave and and Primus did that for me. And I, I pulled him out of the cave every now and then. And, and, and sometimes the song would come on shelf and I'd be like, "Damn, that was a great song. And sometimes I'm just like, what a weird band that I like. And, uh, and I'm not sure how they speak to me, but with it, for this project, I gave him the full listen, um, all the ups and downs of Primus. And I can't wait to, I can't wait to get into it, but this definitely, uh, Pulled up a lot of just feelings of growing up for me, um, for better or for worse.
2: Yeah, that's largely why they found a slot on this season, was the power of nostalgia. Um, I feel that Primus for me means a lot in terms of me just getting into music uh, pretty deeply. So my personal history with Primus is really, it all begins with Primus. I, I would say maybe The Doors, but I would say that Primus came really, really close after after, uh, after my infatuation with The Doors. They're my first modern band of how just weird. I mean, there were more than just alternative. I mean, they didn't sound like anyone else. I, I mean, in terms of their influences, you could certainly see that there were bass-driven very much so like Rush. But for the most part, they don't have that wackiness that you could really pinpoint in most mainstream modern music. I mean, Les Claypool has cited some of his influences, and you know, I've dipped my toe a little bit into the pool of, let's say, the Residents. And of course I'm a big fan of King Crimson. Um, but I wouldn't say that Primus is a progressive band in that nature. They are truly singular in their sound. And Les Claypool has his own sort of style. And I always appreciated about that. As myself, like when I wanted to get into music, I also wanted to learn how to play an instrument. And one of those instruments was the bass guitar. And just seeing how Les approached the bass guitar was unlike anything that I've ever seen anyone really play that instrument ever before i mean it was in the forefront it wasn't just a rhythm instrument it was out in front in the lead and you've got this really purse this weird nasally vocal style that you know in all intents and purposes should not be the lead singer i mean it wasn't punk but it was just so odd so my introduction into Hearing Primus was the summer of 1995. And that was pretty much when they had released Tales from the Punchbowl. They had started to get some radio play um, uh, in uh, as Big Brown Beaver. And we'll talk about that particular song on our next episode. But actually, you know, reflecting back, it was even before then. In eighth grade, we had to do a... It's really I, I I don't understand why teachers do this. So you had to pick a song, and you had to act out a scene without any dialogue. It was all going to be through movement and action, and it wasn't like a drama course. It was just I don't know. I honestly I think it could have been an English course. It was just the strangest thing. So I had picked um, like Mozart, you know, some classical piece that you know I. It was probably like uh, you know I acted out that I was waking up.
3: You picked River but, of Dreams, and you know it, Mark.
2: Um, well, that was just solely for my gymnastics routine, which you know certainly won some awards, and in my mind, it received a standing ovation, and uh, people talk about it to this day. Um, but it was actually a, uh, <laughs> it was a cousin, um, and he. <laughs> Strangely enough, he's also passed away. Um, he had a heart condition, and uh, he actually passed away when he, was in a, when he was a teenager. It was a very sad story. His name was Dusty Bosworth, and he was a cousin of one of our dear friends who has unfortunately also passed away, Jason Hilliwell.
4: I was thinking about Dusty lately. I remember Yeah, that. yeah.
2: So he had picked, and he had stripped away the vocals for... My name is mud because one of the prerequisites for this was actually, you couldn't pick a song that had vocals. It had to be an instrumental. So dusty for whatever reason was smart enough to strip away the vocals for my name is mud. And he picked that and I will remember it to this day. It sounded awesome, but it was, uh, he was really into rollerblading and um, he mimed of putting his rollerblades on going out there playing maybe some roller hockey and this is all in front of a classroom again we're eighth grade and i just remember that was my very first introduction because after he was done i was like who was that And he was like "That was primus it was a song called my name is mud and uh that stuck with me and then years later when "One of was a big brown beaver came out and uh so i mean honestly it was dusty bosworth um apparently might be even related to Brian Bosworth old stone cold. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I will always remember that. Um, I even might have told Jason that too, but it was when I first started getting into music, Primus was my very first live concert and attending your very first live concert is always a very special thing. And, um, we went down to Berkeley. I was, um, going into freshman year and it was, uh, super important. I had my parents have to drive me down to Berkeley and just smelling like marijuana air, uh, smoke in the air. You know, it was quite an introduction. And, um, the, the stage is set like, it looked like Wee's playhouse. The roadies were dressed up as penguins and Les was of course, Les Claypool, just larger than life stomping I mean, around. Not, not
4: only, not only, not only did, did he make the instrument all, the forefront of the band, as we all know, but also when you would see him live, just the way he would play was like, unlike any other bass player out there. I mean, the yeah the, the whole chicken walk and the, 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 the that the one leg rooster leg and everything else. Hell of a front man,
2: but never boring to watch him play. God, I know. And like, he made it look so effortless, like his hands were had a mind of its own, like on that, uh, whether he what whatever he was plucking and it, he just it seemed to be completely in sync and it just looked so easy as breathing for him and uh, it it just blew me away and to this day now I don't love everything Les Claypool does or Primus I don't feel like they're infallible by any means but I would absolutely put Les Claypool into the pantheon that I put. Such artists as Trent Reznor and David Bowie and Nick Cave and Tom Waits, um, I'll always just appreciate that man. And uh, when he shuffles off this mortal coil, it will be a sad day. I I agree. I he's just so singular.
4: And also, yeah, Primus have some low lows, but you don't get the high highs without trying to do something different. And. Them throwing all this zany shit against the wall is, you know, the the amount of stuff that sticks is why we are talking about them tonight. But uh, yeah, Les Clay, like I, I appreciate him so much that just a guy like him exists. A guy from uh, the Bay Area, which we all love and some of us have lived there, which is in Northern California. And And most typically he's in kind of the North Bay. Singular minded artist who plays music of his own style that sings in his own style. That is able to sometime take paths where he's telling stories about old buddies he would know, or something that clearly is like a cartoon come to life about some kind of hillbilly. And going in between sometimes music that rocks extremely hard, verges on metal at times. I mean, Primus was an alt metal band, for lack of a better term, from San Francisco when they first started, to really getting in there and playing funk music and jam music and prog music. And the guy just. You can't stop him. He's just he decided that I will live on this planet once and I will make the most of it my own way. And it's uh, it shows it's awesome.
2: Yeah. I mean, anytime someone approaches uh, their life like that, I mean, it's hard for me not to respect and admire. I mean, he's uh, a phenomenal uh, artist. I, I think I do appreciate Primus is that even though I tend to hew more towards Uh, dark music and i think that eric could agree with me on this you know your skinny puppies and ministries and nine inch nails and even some black metal like converge uh deaf heaven um i'm really (laughs) wolves in the throne room i'm listening to them quite a bit now um but it's having it i was glad to hear that by the way oh man it's they're fantastic but telling you for years I'm telling you, like, it's nice to have kind of a respite from some of that, um, even though there's some dark content that Les talks about. And he's a storyteller, first and foremost, more than a, I feel a lyricist. And it's just nice to be able to switch over to somebody like that and. I don't know. I, I I can't explain it, but there's two sides to the coin of my musical styles, and having somebody who kind of leans into this kind of Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of wackiness with a little bit of a dark edge to it, um, but not always just morose. I appreciate that. I, I I just I need that in my life. You know,
4: I, I need that. But I also I there's a lot of songs that are just. I mean, the song American Life. There are different versions of the song American Life in Primus's catalog. Just singing about weird guys or weird gals from the backwoods and as a, that has its own kind of darkness to it. Yeah. It's it, yeah. It's a good, it's a good tonic to uh, some of the super serious stuff that we hear all the time from people that uh, want us to know that they are artists, you know? So I was like, it's like, take like Les Claypool. Listen, this guy will smoke every bass player in existence. He doesn't need to sit here and tell us he's some super serious artist. He's showing us with his skill. He's a super serious artist with what he can do with the bass. He, he, he shows he doesn't tell how good of an artist he is. I, Just I
2: appreciate that. Show not tell. I think that's a Rush song, right? <laughs> I, I didn't do that on purpose, but uh, yes, I did
4: that on purpose.
3: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's I don't listen to a lot of music that's like um, that's like it meant to be almost like an exhibition of live musical like craft craftsmanship like in the sense where it's like uh well like like you know primus uh you know i don't listen to a, a lot of um of that. like improv
2: right right, right musical improv sure but... sure
3: sure and 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 they i think they write more they're not they the jam band stuff ooh, we'll get into that but before that era like there was definitely some writing and forethought and so I, I, it is fun for me, and, and especially, um, you know, when he kind of knows that it's, it's just kind of showing off anyway, so have, have a little fun with it. It's, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, and I, I like that you mentioned being a bass player, Mark, because I was a bass player too, and, uh, and, and, and like I played in the jazz band. And, uh, I was actually oh, okay. I, if I had my own stand-up bass, I would have stuck with it. But I definitely, you know, as soon as I got my hands on that stand-up bass, I was learning Mr. Pringle. And, uh, <laughs> and like while Jazz Band is setting up, I'm like doing Southbound Packadur.
2: All right. So that was our personal history and, uh, Nothing is more personal than talking about big brown beavers and muds and uh, sailing the seas of cheese. <laughs> but I think it's time before we get into track by track. Let's give the listeners a little little, little history course um, and a little background on what Primus is all about. So who's in Primus? Well, the original, the core three, the power trio, of course, Les Claypool on the bass guitar and vocals, Larry Lair, Lalonde on guitar, and Timothy Herb Alexander on the drums. That is your core nucleus. However, the only two really consistent, if you look at the studio albums, is going to be Les Claypool and Larry Lalonde with a little bit of a revolving door on the drummers. So Yes, you had Timothy, Tim Alexander, you had Jay Lane, and you had Brian, Brain, Mantia. But before then, uh, they actually started out in 1984. And the, uh, Before they became known as Primus, they were known as Primate started in El Sobrante, California, which is located in the East Bay, a little outside of Richmond and Oakland. And it basically featured Les Claypool, guitarist Todd Hooth, and a drum machine. And uh, Todd Hooth and Les Claypool and their subsequent drummer that would uh, do a little bit more than just one gig with them, Jay Lane, they were kind of the first... Um, Really core part of Primus Um, And they also Had a demo They titled it Sausage Which then, years down the road In 1994 They themselves had a side project Called Sausage I'm going across four lanes of traffic In that intro But uh, just stay with me Hey!
0: We're waiting for this bastard Everybody say, Larry, you're a bastard
2: But Steven, do you have any particular background on uh, some of these players, some of the featured players? Any anything that you'd like to throw down?
4: Well, yeah, you know, they were they were for Larry, for Les and Larry, uh, both both born in, in, in the east or the e- north and east bays. Uh, I, I I sometimes forget where my east bays and my north bays. But uh, Les was born in Richmond and he grew up in El Bronte which is uh, that is definitely East Bay ish Richmond. Uh, Richmond's about as rough as they come. And uh, as you can tell from some of his lyrics, he's uh, a working class family of uh, auto mechanics. And you get the impression that Les definitely was raised around people that built things with their hands. And I definitely think that that sense of craftsmanship was passed down in, uh as well as fishing. And he became a bass player at the age of 14, and went to high school with Kirk Hammett. And basically, those guys were in and out of bands in the Bay Area for years. Um, Larry was a similar story. Larry was born in uh, he was born in Oakland, which is definitely the East Bay, right down the street from Richmond, right down uh, the, the freeway there. And he went to uh, high school in Pinole. Which is a, another town right next to Richmond. And much like Kirk Hammett, he was a student, literally, of Joe Satriani on the guitar. So you had Les, Lair, and Kirk Hammett all in bands together or taking lessons from the same people. Uh, Larry and Les, although they're not really metalheads as we think of them today, they were right there when that thrash metal scene was taking off in the Bay Area. Primus would definitely become part of the alternative metal scene which uh, in the Bay Area with such bands as uh, Faith No More and other bands such as Faith No More <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but you know your, your Faith No More is your Fish Bones your, your Mr. Bungles your, your, all those uh, shit even I hate to say it, Red Hot Chili Peppers in the late 80s that's uh, that uh, funk alternative metal stuff going on they were yeah. all, all, all trading tapes and uh, Larry was notably in a band called Possessed that he was in when he was 17. And they were a death metal band. Some say Possessed started death metal. Uh, they, they came Their album Seven Churches came out in 1985. And it was very influential to many other metal bands that decided... They wanted to be something a little bit more sinister and faster than thrash. And in the Bay Area, you had all your thrash metal scene going on. The Metallica, Exodus, uh, Te- Testament, obviously down south. You had Slayer and all that going on in the 80s. Then you had Possessed. who was a bunch of teenagers coming out, making things a lot more evil, adding a lot more reverb and definitely sounding like something where maybe death and black metal go uh, the years following. I was going to say that a
3: that couple of tracks you sent me, Steve, it, they, it sound, still sounds like a bunch of kids in their garage. It definitely feels like they're trying to expand on thrash to make it a little bit more, you know, just kind of like that epic doomsday vibe that, that death metal is always striving for, black metal, I guess.
4: Yeah, it's so it's, it's pretty cool that a bunch of teenagers from El Sobrante in San Pablo area uh, did this. And uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, well, the band started out, when some guy committed suicide in front of his girl's house, girlfriend's house. So they had an opening for a band member. And I believe it's when Lair joined the band. And then he left the band in like 1987 or 88. When somebody got shot in a uh, shot, uh, like a crime scene, somebody was shot somewhere. A lot of, a lot of death, A a lot of death surrounding possessed, but also just that area. I mean, Pinole Richmond. That's not, that's not the, uh, leaving your heart in San Francisco, part of the Bay Area. Those are pretty, pretty rough, rough areas. Sure. Uh, that that would be more of the yay area. It is more of the yay area. Yes. It's, you've got, you've got Vallejo, then Richmond, then Pinole, then Berkeley, then Oakland, right? All in a stretch on the other freeway there. And I, I also want to mention that an interesting side note about Possessed is that uh, they're, Their manager was a lady named uh, Debbie Abano or Debbie Downer. And she was a grandmother. And she was, I want to say, the mother of Lair's girlfriend at the time. And they convinced her to manage the band. And so this lady who's pushing 70 and has grandkids, she's booking Possessed. And she's actually pretty good at it. And so she starts booking other bands like uh, Celtic Frost. And uh, Exodus and in and, uh, uh, I know she, she becomes she becomes a. Kind of a promoter of this metal scene that she has no idea of what she's actually promoting, and she one time like read their lyrics and was like, my God, you're singing about eating children. And they were like, listen, it's all just for fun. And she still kept doing it and was kind of a very maternal figure to all these metal bands. Even though she thought it was kind of crazy, she was always there for them, let them sleep at her house, uh, floated them money when they needed it. And I think that's a pretty neat story. A little sidebar, this whole thing. So yeah, that was, that was Les and Larry. They were bumming around the Bay Area. Les tried out for Metallica when there was an opening, uh, when Cliff Burton passed away. Metallica told him, they say, he told they told him, you're way too good to be in this band. Larry and Les eventually joined a band called Blind Illusion. Which there's an album called The Sane Asylum, which you can find on YouTube. I can't find it anywhere else. That came out in eighty eight. Total thrash metal. But you've got less and Lair on it. And not as much less because he can't let his bass dominate on that in that genre the way he does in Primus. But in these bands, I can hear Lair's playing what it becomes. Whenever Lair gets a chance to solo in possessed or The same or uh, Blind Illusion, it totally goes into less like noodley watercolor land. And I can also very much hear how Joe Satriani helped train Lair how to play the guitar. Uh, he's not classically proficient like a Joe Satriani. Whenever he gets to solo, he kind of does that freestyle jazz like hitting whatever notes he wants stuff. It's uh, pretty cool. Anyways, there's a little bit of background on it. Lair and Les, there. I don't have a lot of notes on Herb. I got a little something, little something
3: for you here. Um, So, uh, only because I have a little personal
4: history that I'm not going to say cross with Herb. Eric, before you dive into it, I do find it interesting. Les and Lair were friends when they were younger. They were in bands earlier before Primus. They definitely formed formed a bond. I think that like Primus moving forward, you can see their bond. And that kind of the way the drummers are rotated out, you can kind of see how that would work. Where those two guys were buddies, and everybody else kind of be they kind of became the third wheel, whether they liked it or not.
3: I I think, right? Yeah, and their their friendship is a through line through their story. A lot of what we're we're talking about is, and we said this off air earlier. Is Mark tipped us to a book that's out there? Is the uh, what's it called? Through the electric grapevine.
2: Over the electric grapevine.
3: Over over, um and. Mark, that was a great recommendation. It's an oral history of the band with like all the other musicians they intersected with, given little, little sound bites. Um, Steve and I read it on our library app, and I could tell someday Steve would be farther than me, so I'd go and read. I'd back it up to where I was, and then when I was done, I'd back it up to where Steve was. It was a, it was a, it was a very strange uh, long-distance uh, uh, sharing, uh, sharing a book situation, but uh, it was great. Great.
2: No, that uh, book has uh, an oral history of Primus and it's not just spoken through um the core members, it even has um Kirk Hammett from Metallica, uh Tom Morello and uh just some of their managers yep. um and Jay Lane, just some of the cohorts that are in the uh, Primus Vortex. And it was very very informative. Yeah,
4: it even has some like newer Oh yeah, guys, Guys from you got Buzz Osborne chimes in, guys sure. from Fishbone. Um yeah, a lot of a lot of people that were around at the time. And it, it's it's written by a guy, the guy that put it together, his name is Greg Prado. Definitely a labor of love. And I think that even if you're not a fan of Primus, it might be interesting reading. It's just got some really crazy, crazy stories, and not in the way of like uh, you know, the dirt by Motley Crue. Not any of that garbage. It's just some of the hijinks that are like could have gone horribly wrong, but ended up in great songs or great performances are pretty amusing to me in that that book. Right. Because they're not really a drama band, not really. Uh, No, they're a band that, you know, ends up taking like too much acid and then has to fly, fly across state in a snowstorm or something. And they didn't expect it and uh, (laughs) stuff like that cracks me up.
3: Yeah. But but anyway, so we
4: get we get Herb Alexander.
3: And what's what's funny about that is I, I. You know, I remember. So I said I'd moved to Arizona just after becoming a Primus fan. It was like '93. I I had the first three albums in tow. Well, no, four albums in tow. And um, I remember my I had an aunt that lived out there. My aunt Amy. She was like my one on my. Like my mom's side of the family, like very, you know, uh, Southern California, conservative, rich people. And she was like the one, like really kind of cool, like rebellious one. And she was, she was significantly younger and she, she lived in Arizona. And so she would like babysit us. and, And when we lived there and, and I, you know, she heard me listen to Primus and she was like, oh yeah, well, you know, their drummer used to be in my favorite band, Major Lingo and Major Lingo was this huge, like Arizona band.
4: Um, and did, they they were, up for, uh, did they open up for critters bugging?
3: <laughs> yeah, they probably could. I mean, they they, they were they were ridiculous. Uh, they they were a mix of country rock, blues, reggae, Celtic, Caribbean calypso, and salsa music. Uh, and when you see them live, it's just like <laughs> it's basically just a vomit of like world music meets jam music uh, meets slide guitar. Um Motley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and and she uh she definitely took us to some concerts and i was like oh herb used to play for them and then i heard him like okay, i see and it's just like a bunch of like vests and like um turquoise bolo ties and cowboy hats uh and a, and a lot of like uh dancing and and uh, anyways it did it did a lot for gen xers i guess in tucson arizona at the time um and herb was in that band quite a bit in fact they moved to san francisco thinking they'd be able to like make it in the in the hippie scene there and they did do some albums and then before, when they were ready to move back to arizona which is really their bread and butter herb got his chance to join primus and that's and that's wasn't he herb was. in
4: the blue Man group at one time or did i make that up
2: he No, was? you're correct sir yeah it was yeah um after he had left primus i believe that's where he uh wanted to try doing some other different things so you know heart wants what it wants But
3: it was funny. Major Lingo was like a constant when I was in Arizona because my aunt loved him so much. When she got married, they played her wedding. And I was like, really wish Herb was still in this band. That's all I kept thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways. Major Lingo. So,
2: yes. So now that we've got the uh, trio complete, um, they uh, recorded their first album, which is, interestingly enough, not really a studio album. They Released a live album as their first release called Suck on This.
1: Well, well,
0: it was a weekend, my so head set for my breath. I was for something to see. me come along, but only if we can bring a friend. His name is Released in
2: 1989, and uh, I think Les Claypool took out a $3,000 loan from his dad in order to at least drum up some money, in order for them to make a uh, full-on studio record. And uh, Suck on This, um, I mean, it's a very raw recording. Um, it captures the spirit the live spirit of the band really well Um, there's a lot of stage banter there's a lot of interaction with the crowd Um, the sound quality is actually pretty great Um, if uh, it was probably recorded on an eight track studio you know mobile recording unit and it holds up i mean honestly uh it doesn't sound like a shitty like someone pressed record on a boombox kind of situation here it actually sounds pretty legitimate it has yeah,
3: you get to hear yeah. the banter in between songs i mean that that's where they were making the names for themselves live and you could tell that yeah. it's one of those weird things where like fans knew their live songs more than some of their album songs because they would keep these live songs in rotation on their albums later on like they would have three albums later they'd finally put out the album version of something they played live back in 1988
4: you know? yeah so. i think that's pretty cool
2: Yeah, I mean, it has, uh, I think every one of the uh, tracks on Suck on This were eventually re-recorded for a studio version. It took a while for every one of those songs. I think the last one to actually get a studio recording um, was The Heckler. It was a bonus track off uh, Antipop. Did they ever do uh, Jelly Kit? July like Kit? Yes, it was on, I believe, the Beavis and Butthead experience. No, I no, think, that was uh, poetry and prose, my friend. I, it was poetry and, poetry and prose, and prose yeah. but I, I'm pretty sure July like Kit. Uh, no, I think it was on Airheads, the Airheads soundtrack. No,
3: it was a song called Bastardizing July like Kit, and it was.
2: Uh, close po- enough. Quite
3: different. Quite <laughs> different. Fuck, Mark, or
4: Eric, you're trying to trap Mark here? You asked him this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that.
2: Yeah, I, mean, all the other I, I think that's close enough, though. I think that really is, uh, in terms oh, of. I'll allow know, it, I guess. <laughs> That um, is
4: kind. That of, is kind of cool, though. They were. They started out very well known, as a live band. They made their bones as a live band. Seems like going to a Primus show was like, oh man, gonna see Primus. And in addition to the music, you know, you might have Bob Seacock wander out and do, you know, fire off a T-shirt gun or something. It was, uh Seems like there was a lot of hijinks at their shows in a, in a good way.
2: And, and who was um, Bob Seacock? Uh, do you uh, want to tell the listeners who that actually is? Oh yeah,
4: Bob Seacock Bob was one of the characters in their songs, but also a real person. It was a guy named Adam Gates. Um, I don't know if he was ever one of the previous members like Todd Hooth uh-huh. or Jay Lane or the other guys, but he was always around. He was friends with them. And uh, he was I think he might have been one of their managers at one point. It seemed like their friends managed them often.
2: Um, I- I think Bob uh, or Adam Gates was in another band called The Spent Poets. You are and correct. I, yes. Yeah, he was just around the Bay Area and uh, just a really good friend. Yeah,
4: he was, yeah, he's a friend. He's from that whole scene. I mean, all these guys, all the guys in Primus, there's all these other friends that kind of surrounded them that either like it took a village kind of thing that would help the Primus movement, if you will. But also, I keep just thinking of Faith No More and Mike Borden and yep. Jim Martin and all the guys in Faith the More at the same time. is something similar. Like all those guys in those bands were commingling and they all knew each other and they were going to parties at each other's houses after show. Adam Gates was one of those guys.
3: You got to love it like when uh, when you have a you got to love it when you got like a just a, a fruitful scene, you know, like, uh, yeah, you know,
4: where they're supporting each other and their friends. And yeah, it was great. It was the late 90s or the late 80s, early 90s, East Bay in San Francisco. And it was a fruitful scene. And it wasn't just like that thrash metal scene that Predated it. It was this odd alternative metal scene where there were no rules, man. But the music was still good. You know, I think if like Tool drove through town, they were hanging out, kind of thing. It was just uh, I get it. I kind of early Primus and early Tool. There's a cross section there. Um, not vocally. Absolutely,
2: but uh, musically, definitely. I mean, uh, both of them were very rhythm based. Uh, if you look at kind of. Just the way the bass and the drum uh, just kind of lock into each other. Um, I feel that Primus and Tool um, really are. Tool is definitely the other side of the coin, though. I mean, they're definitely talking about yeah, some dark. What if they go super prog and super dark? It, exactly. But, I mean, yeah. yeah,
4: Herb and Danny Carrier definitely they, they could have a drum off. Oh, yeah. And then Herb was in Perfect Circle live for a while and in uh, Pucifer. And uh, even... On some project, Tool's base player is on one of Les Claypool's projects somewhere. Anyhow, I totally digress there. Back to Bob C. Cock. Yeah, Adam Gates, they made a character named Bob C. Cock and they have this old like it's the suit you see in the uh, My Name is Mud video. It's like a like an old He was like a lounge blue. like a lounge guy. He was like F- a, powder guy. yeah, he's like a lounge yeah. guy, but wearing like a powder blue like leisure suit. He's basically a leisure suit Larry. And
2: he's getting nachos in the uh, Jerry Was a Race Car yes. Driver video. He's, yeah. Yeah,
4: exactly. Nachos. Steamy. <laughs> uh So yeah, this guy would wear this old suit and they he would go to shows and they would have him, you know, like fly over the audience It's like a you know, and drop balloons on people or he'd, he'd come out and introduce the band and you'd have strippers next to him, but he was this sleazy character and it was all an act. And uh that one thing was that they that he only had one suit and they never let him wash the suit. And to this day, <laughs> he think he think he doesn't know what happened to that suit. He thinks that suit got up and just walked away one. Day. <laughs> so. But uh, yeah, Bob Cock was definitely one of the characters from from Primus Town. Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: he had a blog, too, um, around the recording of the Brown album on uh, PrimusSucks.com. Uh, during the early days of the internet. Uh, it was absolutely worth tuning in as he would make commentary on the recording or just alternative music scene. Uh, it was highly entertaining. I I, I love that well, I'm man. Glad,
4: I'm glad you mentioned that. That is one cool thing about Primus too, is they were on the forefront of weird computer internet shit. Yeah. Like they adopted to the internet, I think sooner than other bands did, like with what you just mentioned. Uh, also, like with Tales in the Punch Bowl, they had the whole interactive C- CD-ROM experience, and they didn't just pay someone to do that. Like Lesson Lair bought Macintoshes and put a lot of it together themselves. Absolutely, they, they were totally into giving people a fun all-around experience.
3: They were so ahead of it that they ended up running the Interscope website for a couple of years. Like, like the Interscope did not have a website. And they ended up running like because they were yeah. There. let these and guys do it, it for free. It. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and, you know, not to mention Adam Gates, uh, you know, he actually got a job at Pixar, you know, um, eventually. I don't know if he's still working there, but he he did. I mean, that doesn't got surprise pay me. I mean somehow. a lot of
4: these these guys were creative. They were surrounding themselves with creative people as well. Well, I mean, look at all the m- music videos and there were claymation and the hand cl- made album covers that were clay. I mean, these guys. They were they were doing a lot of stuff beyond the music, and it shows.
2: Yeah, it was a multimedia event. No problem. It
4: was, and it should yeah. get us so suck on this. They they first album they put out was a live album. Bold move, and Les uh, eventually got to pay his dad back with money he made off one of the other records, and one of the other records was the next record, which was a Frizzle Fry in 1990.
2: full-length studio record it makes quite the impression I mean you've got some classic Primus tracks on here you've got John the Fisherman, Too Many Puppies, uh, Frizzle Fry, Pudding Time, The Toys Go Winding Down, Herald of the Rocks, and... Mr. Mr. Know-It-All was an early favorite of mine. Oh, yeah, and to defy the laws of tradition, too. I think uh, when I very first saw Primus live, um, that's what they opened with, and, uh, I mean, it just... You might as well have lit a cannon. It was just... It, it set the whole place on fire, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, I, I mean... At the end of our discussion here, we'll go through our personal rankings of this one. But, uh, you know, just fire it off. Like, what are your, some of your impressions on Frizzle um, Fry, Eric? Oh, yeah, man. This this
3: one, like, uh, was an early favorite. I I think I, I actually remember listening to it in hotel rooms as we moved to Arizona. Like, I was just stuck on some tracks on this, this particular record. Um, and uh, it was just, you know, it was it was funky and the music was out there, but there was always a melody that you could hook onto. And, um, you know, he was silly, but still, I think he still had one foot in the metal scene enough to, to have kind of an Epic songwriting kind of, you know, pathway on this album where, um, you know, I, I think the balance of, uh, what I mean by that is the balance of silly to serious songwriting is pretty solid on this particular album. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get to rankings later, but it's, it's, it's very strong. And, um, it sounds good and they produce it themselves and we're still an indie band on like Caroline records, distribute, distributed, like who's ever heard of that before, you know? Uh, right. uh, yeah. Or who's ever heard of Caroline records before, <laughs> you know, they were, they were great. Uh, so this is, this is a strong one. And on my re-listen it, it, it held up very well. Um, it held up actually better than some of the later stuff. It, it just is as just coming in fully
2: formed. Yeah. Steve, what do you think about Frizzle Fry?
4: Yeah, man. Like when I first heard it, when I was younger, I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And as I grew older, I started to like it more because it is completely consistent. I don't think there's any filler. I really don't. I think it's all killer, no filler. And not only are the songs great, I mean, like you mentioned, uh, John the Fisherman, the toys go winding down, Harold on the rocks. Oh, my God, that song, like that one. Yeah, yeah. like that, like when I was talking earlier about how sometimes I might drift from Primus, songs off Frizzle Fry, i never drift Don the Fisherman is one of my favorite songs of all time, and uh, Harold on the Rocks takes me to a pretty happy place as well, Uh, among other songs on that record. uh, Spaghetti Western. Uh, Sorry,
3: Steve, Harold on the Rocks, though, I just want to mention that. Uh, One thing you'll hear me say is, like, sometimes songwriting-wise, I'm going to be a little hard on Les when, like, he can't think of lyrics, so he just talks about, like, some conversation he had with somebody that has no thematic weight whatsoever, Pearl on the Rocks might seem like that, but as you listen to it, it's literally about watching a like um, an acquaintance slowly fall into addiction, and um, how like kind of concerning that is. Um, uh, and it still it still manages to be funny somehow, and, and it works
4: out really well. So that, that song is one. But uh, but I let mean, let's let me put a pin in it because how much I like Frizzle Fry, I can come back to. What is wrong with the lyrical stylings if it has the melody of the song? of telling a story or just regaling a conversation, a conversation you had with someone. What is it, wrong with that?
3: I don't know. I, I, from a songwriting perspective, if if you don't have anything to say, uh, I don't know, about that, that people can connect to about life, either big picture or small picture, just make it a fucking instrumental song. It, it'll be great. You know? No, I,
4: I disagree because sometimes you need the vocals in there, even if they are gibberish. To be the fifth instrument, if if you will. Yeah. And well, I also I... think you kind of contradict yourself because I think Les's buddy Tom Waits writes a lot of similar cool lyrical songs to what Les writes.
3: I think he's always got a bit a bit to say though, even when he, and sometimes he doesn't. And and when we get to Tom Waits, I'll be equally hard on him. But uh, I
4: think he's always I'll, got a bit. I'll hold to say. you to that. I'm making a note right now. Do it. Old. Eric to his hypocrisy about <laughs> Les and Tom's lyrical styling. Well,
3: I, don't, I don't expect everybody to be a, a lyrical genius. Um, it's just like you know, as we. I, but mean, I, I think Les Claypool's
4: a great lyricist. That's why it blows he my is. Mind.
3: He is when he really, when he absolutely really tries to. Um, and then you get to a song like later down the line, Mr. Kringle, where it's literally just about a sports team talking about a sports team with somebody. That's not, that's not fucking, not there's, nothing, necessary. there's fucking I, to do it. Exactly. No, that's not true. I, I,
2: I, we'll, we'll talk about pork soda all when right, we get right, there. But right, um, I, right. I, I honestly Mr. like, about
4: Mike <laughs> it, it
2: is, it's about like a little bit of their conversations and just kind of like an ode to the man. But um, I honestly think that, I, I think that uh, Les Claypool, um, he is a great writer, um, whether it be um, the way that he writes songs or, or the way that he just he's a storyteller, more first and foremost. He doesn't really like to talk about how he personally feels and so overtly. He likes to put it into characters. And that's and something that. that a, a lot of songwriters don't and that's do.
3: A, and that's okay. I find it refreshing. I, I'm yeah. okay with that. I mean, you know, our favorites, Waits and The Cave, that's, that's their go-to also. And I'm, I'm great with it.
4: Yeah, but sometimes often. he's
3: just got he's got fucking nothing to say. Sometimes that's true too.
2: I I, I just think that Les Claypool doesn't always uh, have deep meaning in his songs, but um, I think that he's obviously has something to say. Whether it's just anecdotal information, whether it's uh, just something he wants to regale us about a story that um, you know strikes some interest in his and. He, Essentially, just uh, had a bass groove that he wants to go along with that, but I don't hold it against him. I think that's just part of his personal charm.
4: No, the storytelling or the songwriting I expect from him lyrically is something akin to. I don't. I don't go grab a copy of. uh, I don't go grab the. I don't go grab John Steinbeck when I want to read something in the vein of uh, Zap Comics, underground type stuff. Uh, You know, that's. I I go directly like I know what I'm getting into when I get into Primus and I'm not going there for the lyrics, but I appreciate what the lyrics bring to it. I don't know how else to put it.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, I I hear you. I mean, like when you look at uh, a song called Shake Hands with Beef, I mean, you'd think like, what is what is this all about? But it literally is seems to be about his friend who um, considers himself a vegetarian. But every now and then he goes to Taco Bell to have a uh, ground beef taco. And as he calls it, Shake Hands with Beef, I'm going to go shake hands with beef. And, uh, you know, or it could be about fucking jerking off. Who knows? But <laughs> but at the,
4: at the same time, I mean, this guy's written uh, American Life. Yeah. Blue Collar Tweakers. And I think those are some great lyrics. Oh, great. he can yeah. be he
3: can be amazing. You know, and I actually right. actually think less on his game is, uh, I think, just a actually what I would a cornerstone in what I think of as of good writing. I'm just saying there's 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 some lazier songs than others. And uh, don't, in those cases, I wouldn't mind an instrumental
2: track. OK. Understood. Right. Oh, understood. I mean, uh, agree to disagree, I guess, because I think Les' vocals is part of the charm of Primus, even though it's not for everybody. But for Frizzle Fry, I mean, it is a fantastic debut studio record. It's got a clearly defined template of what Primus is all about. I wanted to, yeah, no, I, I, I diverged us. But Frizzle Fry, I've said, I've thought
4: this, I thought this before we did this podcast episode. I think it's probably one of the strongest debuts ever. Yeah. I mean, I think it's some of my favorite bands. I think of uh, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, mm-hmm. Skinny Puppy, um, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, uh, Ministry.
2: Um, Not David Bowie's first uh, studio album. Sorry, his David first Bowie. record <laughs> is, It belongs in the Rick in the bargain
4: uh, bin. Yeah, I mean, just, so you're right. Think Steve, of all those it's, artists. It's good. They don't hit the ground running like Primus did on Frizzle Fry. Yeah. I, I, I mean, they had a warm up by being a live act and they basically went in the studio and hit record. And it still sounds great. I think it's a well-produced album. I, it's just, I, I think it's, it's slow. It's so, there's so much meat on the bone without fat on Frizzle Fry. It's really impressive for a debut album. I just think it's awesome. Great record.
2: No, I think you're right. I mean, it really doesn't contain a lot of filler moments. There is some interludes uh, like uh, Southington Willoughby. Willoughby. Um, uh, But I mean, there's not some like, I mean, even like the you would think the throwaway songs like Spaghetti Western um, or Groundhog's Day, those fucking thrash. There's some moments on there that it kind of starts like, OK, let's go what whatever is this going. But then it just kicks you in the ass and it just proves to you that like, God damn, this, there is no fucking filler on this record. No, I mean, and, and,
4: and songs like Groundhog's Day have great like breakdowns. They had. Yeah. Early primates had really great, like heavy breakdowns. Like a, that book reiterates it, but I, I've always remembered. Jerry was a race car driver. Had like has like a full on like mosh pit moment. Oh God, Many yeah. of their songs have that stuff. Like they they yeah. know how to just get down when they need to, and a lot of that's on Frizzle.
2: It really is. I mean. um I, I can't believe that uh, because it was on Caroline Records, I think it was out of print and a little hard to find um, before like the streaming really came into our um, everyday life. But to actually find it in a record store um, was actually kind of hard. I think they didn't release it until uh, re-release it until 2004. So so, if but you-
4: Frizzle Fry was so good mm-hmm. and their live act was so good that they were playing at the Stone in San Francisco which is a venue I never got to go to, but I've read so many stories of so many cool bands at the stone. I wish I could have. When I lived there, it was already gone, but th- th- this all goes on. And so basically some guy from Interscope comes to see them at the stone one day and takes a cigarette out of his mouth and says, uh, you guys want a record deal with Interscope?
2: You <laughs> got <that> the juice. <laughs> That's basically what happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because he saw the energy uh, from the crowd. I mean, they were absolutely just, you know, turning the whole room upside down, you know? So he felt that, like, th- we're going to get some sales. I mean, look at this. Look at this act. And uh, sure enough, they were, I think, what the second artist or band to be signed to Interscope right behind, like, what, Rico Suave or <laughs> that, something like that?
3: Is that Tom, Tom Whaley? Yeah.
2: Tom, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. No, that's right. Because, Tom just Jimmy Jimmy I Iovine. Iovine? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, he, he wasn't into Primus, but Tom Whaley, like, was carry their flag for their duration on that label you, you could see like the writing on the wall that like weird quirky um like funk inspired rock was a thing and that you had a band that already had a following and had serious like festival potential um i i think it was a pretty genius move and they did everything themselves and primus prided prided themselves on not asking for any money and like or like they, i mean obviously they wanted money but like they stretched the money that they got and they, and they stayed within budget and less was like kind of a genius for figuring that out.
4: That I I love that. No, I, yeah. I love that. I mean, that's how I'm, that's how I'm taught to be at my job. Where as a project manager, I look at my budget and even though I got a lot of room in the budget on some projects, it's been beaten into me to always try to do like, try to try to barter with the, uh, you know, our partners as much as possible when I can, because at the end of the day, you're going to probably need some of that money back when you don't expect it. and That's what Primus did. And I think that's it's right. like they were, they didn't, you know, they they did a lot of things themselves. They, yeah, they did a lot of sound checking themselves. They were kind of their own roadies to an extent with a small group of roadies with them. Did a lot of the artwork. They didn't hire, I mean, they produced their own albums for the most part. Uh, they didn't have a lot of the excess that you need or that, that other bands thought they needed once they got a record deal. Yeah. I mean unless went yeah. and paid his dad back for the money he, he, right. he lent him on suck on this. Right. And they were really frugal and they preached that. And I think uh I, I think they were able to continue to do their own thing because of that as well. Exactly. They weren't relying so much on well shit, if we don't know if the record label tells us, then we're not gonna get the money we need.
3: Right. So Tom Tom Whaley would say like it seems like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You guys are doing your own thing. People like it. You're moving units and you're not going over budget. So keep it going. And then that actually last, that actually lasted them for half their career and until it didn't. And we'll get to that.
2: Right. But uh, their major label uh, debut, which was their sophomore studio record, was Sailing the Seas of Cheese, which came out in 1991. <laughs> Had such singles as "Jerry Was a Race Car Driver," "Tommy the Cat," uh, "Those Damn Blue Collar Tweakers," um, and they also had a little bit of a spot. Uh, they were featured in the motion picture of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, um, who also had Jim Martin appear from Faith No That's More. Right. Um, unfortunately, Primus was one of the contestants in the Battle of the Bands. They ended up losing to the Wild Stallions, playing a cover of Kiss's God Made Rock and Roll, Mm -hmm, but Primus mm -hmm. were seen playing Tommy the Cat. Um, uh... Man,
3: I, 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 I've DVR'd that off of, like, AMC or something, and they cut Primus' entire performance out of it, and I almost threw my remote at the screen, and then I, and then we promptly bought the Blu-ray box set, but I was just, just pissed.
2: Yeah. I wonder if they just didn't have the musical rights to do that on AMC or something. There's got to be some story behind that. It's yeah. not like they were. But they were, um, you know, starting to get a little bit of uh, uh, little buzz. They were opening up for Rush, um, Friend of the Show, U2, um, Anthrax, Public Enemy, and Fishbone. Um, and uh, I know this later this season we're we'll going to be talking about a Public Enemy record. Steve's a big fan of Anthrax, and, uh, you know. Me, Mr. You, too.
4: That's a pretty cool. It wasn't Fishbone, actually. Well, no, they didn't. You're right. No, they did open up for Fishbone. They toured yeah. together. But uh, that Anthrax, it was Anthrax, Primus, Public Enemy and the Young Black Teenagers.
2: Was it fighting Power um, uh, tour? Just think like
4: that? just that uh, that was, you know, that was during the whole Bring the Noise remake era. That's it. But just, I think that's so cool to be back then for Public Enemy and Anthrax and then Primus to be on a bill together. Uh, and the young black teenagers who I'm not familiar with but well that that
3: had spearhead who had that that hole in the bucket song and then yeah that's that, that yeah that i mean that he's a rapper, spearhead, yeah, yeah, and then he ended up becoming kind of like a hippie rapper, but
4: that yeah that was a certain. what a i mean screw your festivals like that's a festival into itself, that's some pretty diverse uh groups of uh fans coming together that's pretty awesome um uh, and, and again. Uh, I uh, that was kind of spearheaded by uh, Anthrax wanted to do that, but uh, Primus definitely they 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 fit in with the metalheads and the alternative nations and the the funk people. And later, unfortunately, to a certain extent, the jam people, uh, they they walk, they walk between the raindrops of many different music
2: uh, fandoms. That is true. I mean, this record doesn't really contain a lot of filler either. I mean, there's a few things that, you know, uh Uh, What is that? Grandpa's little ditty. Um, But for the most part, like Here Come the bastards, Sergeant Baker, American Life, Jerry was a race car driver, Tommy the Cat. Those damn blue collar tweakers and fish on are all what I consider highlights on this record.
3: This is not my favorite uh, record by them, but I think damn blue collar tweakers might be my favorite Prima song. Oh, man, that's a good choice. It's It's just fucking uh, I think they play it
4: live every 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 show since it's been written. So. I
2: mean it gets the crowd going. I mean it's just one of those uh talk about those breakdowns. I mean the whole mosh pit is essentially jumping up and down um during, you know, fired up, you know that part. Like, um, He's oh, got bom, some right. crazy some crazy bass fills on that that yeah. song.
3: I love the uh, uh the Woodstock 94 version where he does the Jimi Hendrix uh uh Fucking,
2: uh, what is it, the National Anthem or whatever? Uh, yeah, was
3: on the bass. Yeah. Sorry, had to do it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Oh, yeah.
2: God, yeah. I mean, it's not my favorite record by them as well, but it's pretty fun from top to bottom. All three of us saw them perform it live. Primus has a tendency to pick albums, whether it's their own or um, some of their influences, and play the whole record. Um, you know, in this... Uh, they've done that for frizzle fry they've done that for this record and I think those are the really the only two primus records they play from top to bottom um, but uh, this last tour they did a rush record um, what is it Stephen is it uh, uh, farewell to kings farewell to kings by rush and then Stephen when you saw them uh, uh, his solo project the fearless flying frog brigade they did pink floyd's animals all the way through which they yeah. do have a live recording on that so
4: yeah that's worth seeking out and yeah they did sailing the cheese live all the way through we saw that um yeah great album i think it's produced really well um i think it sounds a lot sonically it it and pork soda sound like they were recorded to me in the same session uh a little bit less drizzle fry sounds good but it's uh kind of dry i think sailing the cheese and pork soda have a little bit more um i don't know fluids and liquids to them <laughs> i
2: don't know else to put it. i do agree with that i i think that the frizzle fry has this kind of thin paper like quality um i yeah. think it has kind of like a little diy to it but whereas um i think the production budget got a little bigger and so you do get a little bit more warmer tones and uh you hear more of the the tonality from all of the three instruments rather than just kind of something that looks thin
3: the 2013 remaster is pretty nice for seeing and of Cheese. Yeah, Cheese.
4: Yeah, I mean, Jerry's a race car driver. You can't say enough about that. So that's a great, great choice for a single. I think it's a great song. Great video. Uh, great video. Uh, I mean, the video is just Bob Seacock going to get nachos and he walks <laughs> get Knocked outside. over by
2: Larry on the skateboard.
4: Yeah, you got, you got Larry and you got one of the like, back to inside jokes, you got less trying to fix his car and you fired up lair and uh yeah. i just say fired up lair all the time at, out of context and uh he trips and his nachos hit the ground and you go into a claymation world of the yeah. album cover
3: uh, and i love that claymation world. stuff so like greg and i in arizona we used to set up like he was super talented in a camera that just did like you could program the frames and so he would make these like whole claymation videos and i i was just, i would just have a blast watching him do it and it was all inspired by Primus. It's awesome.
4: Yeah, no, it's a it's a great album. It's got the, that. Uh, this American Life is a great song. The Dan Bucar Tweakers. Unfortunately, it also starts to, like I said earlier, Primus throws a lot of stuff against the wall. Uh, got songs like Eleven and Is It Luck, and uh, I uh, those are skipples, skippers for me. But uh, the the high highs are are much. They're, they're so good. That's okay. They can, they can stumble a little bit.
3: Yeah, I agree. It's got some good stuff and, and, and it's got some, it has less gravitas as, as frizzle fry, in my opinion. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, it's, but it's solid, solid, solid sophomore.
4: You know, let's, we have to, I got to do this. We got to talk about the Tommy, the cat video. And then we got to talk about, we skipped the John, the fisherman video, which also we need to talk about these videos. That's fine. So the Tommy, the cat video, Tommy, the cat is where they get Tom Waits to contribute. Uh-huh. And they actually, they're like, can we get like a guy that sounds like Tom Waits or Tom Waits? And somebody knew someone and knew Tom Waits. And so they called Yeah, Tom Waits will do some of the, uh, the vocals in your song. And Tom Waits ended up recording the Tommy, the cat parts on like a like a, like a Memorex cassette and mailing it to them. And they played it back and they're like, it's great that he sent us this, but we can't use this at all. It's unusable. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, eventually they got him to come down to the studio and do it. Well, I
0: remember this old war meal ago. Tommy the, the Cat is a real back clear whatever form out of a little twain to his mighty throat. Many a fatal ran his demise while starting point blanked on the covetous barrel of this awesome prowling machine. Truly a wonder of nature, the serpent predator. Tommy the Cat had many a story to tell, but it was a rare occasion such as this that he did
4: Tommy yeah. the Cat is a fantastic song, and the video is fantastic. I mean, the video's got uh, the band mainly less playing and, and or uh, working at a milk bar, and yeah. less is dressed like an old timey uh, bartender. And his
3: like body, uh, his like physical comedy is so good in that video. It's great. Yeah,
4: yeah you think he was trained to be on SNL or something? It's that good. And so he's mixing drinks and singing, and then you've got when it does the Tom Waits part, just goes into animated like. Fritz the Cat type yeah. Uh, yeah, stuff. <laughs> Just this sleazy, uh, horny cat trying to get, you know, his...
2: Uh, he sliding down the alleyway like a butter dripping on a biscuit.
4: Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> I, I love it.
3: Was it yeah, around I- here that, 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 that Tom wasted did Bone Machine?
4: I feel like yeah, yeah,
3: year, year-wise, it's pretty close. And Let's Play Pool, I think, plays on, and Herb, I think, play on two tracks on Bone Machine. Um, I Herb, Really?
2: I thought it was Brain. Well, though, uh, uh, no,
3: no, no, no. Um, big in Japan, they did play on, but that's later. Bone Machine has, like, in the Coliseum, which I know they play on and um a couple other tracks on there so they were they were already collaborating as early as that which is awesome because they live like right next to each other Tom Waits is in like Sebastopol or something it's it's, it's this north North Bay uh junkyard rain, rain
4: plays on such a scream and in the Coliseum Les Claypool plays on Earth died screaming
3: oh there you go yeah I knew it was one of those uh one of those uh, apocalyptic songs but yes. Good stuff,
4: which we may cover.
3: I think we're covering that album this season. So great.
4: Yeah, that video is amazing. And then let's talk about John the Fisherman real quick from Frizzle Fry. John the Fisherman, like I said, is, I think, a perfect song. And the video has uh, the band and their friends fishing in the bay and uh, on a boat, driving around and just fishing interspersed with these like weird crude, like marionettes telling the story of John, the fisherman and his mother. Uh, the marionette stuff again, looks like Pee Wee's playhouse stuff, but I just love the shots of the band driving around fishing. This is back when Les like Les us Claypool is interesting. Like we talked about marches, the beat of his own drum has some weird haircuts. He ends up becoming a guy that wears like monocles and bowler hats, but he was young though. Back in these days, he was wearing like, uh, you know, flannel shirts, like buttoned up to his neck and uh, like skater hats and tight jeans. He's actually kind of handsome in his own way. Uh, I don't know. He
3: had the uh, the ponytail with this the side shaved, which, Steve, I know you must have had that
4: till oh, I had, had both side shaved at one point. Yeah, but was, yes, he, uh, yeah, yeah, he was he was some weird, like urchin hipster look to him that I always found. Uh, a little, you know, I'd, I'm comfortable enough with my sexuality. I think Young Lesk label is a catch. I don't know. In a weird, <laughs> strange way. And, uh, you know, we have got Kirk Hammett's on that boat too for the John the Fisherman video. I just, uh, I love that video. I love that song.
3: So. Yeah, I, I was watching him with my son and, you know, he's not necessarily inclined to like the music, but he's like, Dad, I really like these videos. Like, they always use cartoons or some cool art. Like, so that was definitely an appeal for me too. You know, early on, you saw those videos and just, It was a great marketing when, when, when music videos were still a thing, like it was a great marketing, like the employee that like just colorful and artistic and draws
4: you in, even if you're not crazy about the music. The back to selling the cheese. Yes. Great album. It, It is great. Step in the right direction. It's definitely the same band that made frizzle fry, but they're, they're playing with the more tools in their toolbox.
2: And speaking of videos, so in 1992, they released a um, cover song EP called Miscellaneous Debris. But along with that, they also did a VHS copy of Cheesy Home Videos, which essentially showed all of the music videos they had done to that point, um, interspersed with a fishing expedition of Les Lair and Herb out in probably um, uh, San Pablo Bay, just fishing. And it would just go in between that and the music videos. And every now and then they would do some uh, tour documentary. It was kind of like, you know, the Nine Inch Nails closure video with a lot more sense of humor to it. Um, But the EP Miscellaneous Debris, um, it it introduced me to uh, some songs that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, One in particular that did have a single. It was a song by XTC, making plans for Nigel. Um, it, apparently, it did get some radio play. But um, one of the s- songs that I really zeroed in on was their uh, cover of "Have a Cigar," and Peter Gabriel's uh, "The Intruder." Those were Whoa. two of my favorites.
3: "Have a Cigar" is so good. It's it's yeah. it's really really it's, it's got a lot of weight to that. They, you could tell they were they their hearts were in that one. It's so solid.
4: Well, that's that's another reason when I got into Primus. The fact that they were Pink Floyd guys, we get that cover, and you can just hear it. I mean, Southbound Packin' you can tell they're Pink Floyd bands. But on Have a Cigar, like Pink Floyd is one of the first bands, along with Guns N' Roses and Led Zeppelin, when I was a kid that I got into when I got into music. Period. Like, whoa, these are bands, these are musicians. This is what they do. And like Iron Maiden, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Guns N' Roses, those were the four first bands I heard of when I discovered. What is music? What is rock music? What is the rock business? What are music videos? All that stuff. Those four bands were my introduction. Those are the first bands where I got to know the names of members of the bands. And so, Primus, who is essentially in like my second wave of music fandom when I'm a teenager, uh, paying homage to one of the first bands I discovered. I mean, it's not like Pink Floyd's an underground band, but when you're a kid and you discover something for the first time, you think it's like, whoa. Has anyone heard of this? And so Primus covering them, to me, told me, wow, not only do I like these guys, but they like the same stuff I like. And as a teenager, I wasn't used to that yet with uh, Discovery music. I wasn't I haven't been alive long enough to have some of the people who are making art also show me that some of the art I appreciated elsewhere, they liked as well. Am I making sense here? The idea of influences is a little as a teenager like what well, didn't dawn on me how you can be in, like how these guys got influenced by some of the same people that I appreciated. Now, I mean, as you grow up, all the time it makes sense, but that was the first time I actually remember like, holy shit, these guys like Pink Floyd too. Well, that's cool. And uh, yeah, let's go. Cool.
2: I mean, I only uh, associated Peter Gabriel with uh, at that point Sledgehammer, and hearing some of this other dark. Um, sort of uh, uh, side to Peter Gabriel done through Primus. It was a, it was a good gateway. But uh, Eric, do you have anything to mention about Miscellaneous Debris or? Uh, no,
3: you're solid. Uh, just just uh, the, the, the Peter Gabriel one, great. And then the residents just turn, tuning me into the residents, which I hadn't listened to.
2: Awesome too. Sinister Exaggerator. Yeah, that's another good highlight. Um, but then their next studio record uh, was, I think their highest charting Record to date. I don't think that they've ever surpassed in terms of uh, record sales, but it was uh, released in 1993, and that was Pork Soda. So Pork Soda, I mean, it has some really warm production. Um, they're really getting them into more of an experimental phase of their career. Um, the drums sound rich. Bless's bass, I feel, is perfectly mixed. Um, Lair's got some crazy solos on this record that has a lot of texture. Um, darker subject matter, I feel, is abound on this one. Um, it starts out with... Uh, Porkchops, little ditty, or I'm not sure, yeah. And then it goes abruptly into My Name is Mud, just that bass slide. And it sounds like uh, Trouble's Coming Over the Hills. And um, it just has this classic sound um, that mixes the experimentation. Um, There is some humor on there, despite some of the darker subject material, whether it be murder, suicide, drug addiction. It does do this without going into some full-scale nonsense that they tend to do a little too often now in their later works. I'll just go ahead and say that. My personal highlights for Pork Soda is a song, My Name is Mud, Bob's, DMV, Old Diamondback Sturgeon, Nature Boy. Uh, There's a really cool drum instrumental that uh, Herb does called Wounded Knee, The Pressman. Uh, Mr. Crinkle and this eight-minute-long jam uh, called The Hamburger Train. Uh, I, I I really like this record quite a bit. What do you guys think of this one?
4: You can't go wrong, Pork Soda. Uh, sometimes that's my favorite one. It's not, but it has been. Um, everything about it, I like the artwork on the cover. I like the choice of the digipack. Uh, the songs that you mentioned, I mean, yeah, it's pretty... It's got some filler. It's got some at this point, I'm starting to think some of the nonsense they're doing in between some songs is as bad as rap skits, personally. I don't need to hear Grandpa washing himself or
2: Hail Santa.
4: Porkchop's little d- ditty is, yeah, it's, it's, it's passable, I'll suppose, but yeah. Um... <laughs> it doesn't ruin a record by any means. I just <laughs> I don't think they're necessary, but also the weirdness primus. That's what they wanted to do. Like, you wouldn't get the good without the weird with them. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, Mr. Crinkle is an all-timer. My name is Mud, an all-timer. Bob is an all-timer. Uh, the Pressman, the song's unbelievably good. And, yeah, and Hamburger Train is next level. Uh, they're really good at... Later in their career, they're going to get lost up their own ass too much sometimes with instrumentals or songs that have instrumental interludes and you're like, hey, get back to the song. But Hamburger Train is uh, awesome. Um, even the second... Stuff on that, like Nature Boy, not my favorite song by any means, but it's actually pretty good. I think it's a pretty solid record, and I think it pa- pairs well with Sailing the Season Cheese. And especially, like I said, the Pressman incredible song, and also the at the end of Bob, where he does the whole yada, da, 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 da,
0: da,
4: da, 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 awesome i just i think pork soda is a really great record and uh continued yeah evolution of this band in the uh like they i think they plateaued pretty early i think they they they, they hit a home run with those frizzle fry and they're hitting like doubles and triples with their next two albums um
2: yeah i think they're it's it's uh they're going up the mountain on uh uh on on these couple records and you're right they're starting to get to the summit and unfortunately what comes up must go down i mean right. uh, so yeah I, I feel like they're ramping up and uh, unfortunately there is going to be a moment where they're going downhill so eric what do you think yeah. about pork soda yeah
3: no for uh, or, pork soda is great this is my intro to primus um it was because of the videos from this this album that My friends bought me all of the older albums and I was, I was into it. Um, I think Bob is a top-notch song on here. It's one of their most dour. It's one of their most atmospheric tracks. Um, and like you said, Steve, somehow it's funny and and haunting at the same time. And that is a talent. I I really do like it. Um, yeah, this, this thing is, is, is all over the place. It has some weird ones. It, it, It has their first like dip into like jigs, like the air is getting slippery. Um, but that song right. is kind of creepy enough that I, I, I do like it. Yeah, um, uh, Les will go into hillbilly mode sometimes where I, I just would rather not follow him down there. Um, but I'm still with him on, on Eras Getting Slippery. Um, like I said, Mr. Krinkle, I that was my favorite song. And it, it is, it's it's a top-notch one for me. I love the atmosphere and how it sounds. But this is just where me and Steve will just have that argument where... It's just a shame it's not about anything. He could have spent a little bit more time on... Because on, its song sounds epic. It sounds like... Like... Uh, like creepy and tense. And there could be a story to that song... That's more than talking about a, a baseball team moving away. Um, not to... Not to not to tell you how sad that would be if a baseball team moved away. I just it was the realize. Giants too.
2: They were because uh, that was around the time. So right. Mike Borden was a big fan of the San Francisco Giants, and at that point they were running out of money and they were potentially going to have to move to Tampa Bay. And uh, Mike was pretty distraught about that. And uh, Les decided to put pen to paper. But I'll tell you one thing about Mister Crinkle. That video is a work of art. I yes. Mean, I, yes. Holy shit. I mean, that was my, I mean, that was
3: my end. That was my, that was, it wasn't, mis- it wasn't uh, mud. It was crinkle that, uh, that one shot, one long shot in a warehouse. So good.
2: I mean, how complicated. I mean, I think, um, in that book over the electric grapevine, the stunt guy that had to be set on fire, there's a rule that you can only be set on fire four times. And so they that's, had that's to make sure. That's four
4: times too many, by the way. Like that's ridiculous yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah the human body the human body you know uh, five times is too many but the human body can handle four times being lit in fire one day that seems okay all right four times yeah
3: yeah no it's it's a great video um you know welcome to this world is an interesting song it's uh i always attribute it to the movie brain scan uh i remember in in arizona there was zia records which was basically dimple they had the exact same artwork And uh, I would go to the soundtracks and and I brain scan soundtrack Primus and I was like, Oh, well, let's write on the song. So I made sure to watch the movie, which if you've never seen it, Edward uh, Furlong gets a video game where he kills somebody in the video game and then he wakes up the next morning and finds out somebody in real life died the same way he killed him in the video game. And He starts freaking out. And then this creature called like the jester or the trickster comes out of the video game and he's like this wacky character. He comes out and he's. He's like, you know, hey, what are you listening to? Oh crap, great he starts throwing CDs across the room. Oh, this is good. And puts Primus in and, and starts dancing around the room to welcome this world. It's absolutely as batshit stupid as I made it sound, that, that movie brainscan. But
4: yeah, that it sounds was- kind of ridiculous, but it's got a, it's got good drumming. So yeah, yeah. That album actually has good drumming. I mean, Primus always has good drumming, yeah. even when it's not her, I think. Yeah, but I think yeah. Pork Soda's got some stellar drum right. sections and like yeah. I think feeling like stealing the season cheese, I feel like it's produced in a way where I can hear everything separated from itself, which is, you're not going to get that on some other records. Sure. But, uh, pork soda is just, I mean, there's a, that's a platinum album. That and stealing the season cheese. I think both went platinum.
3: That yeah. was my mind. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Easy. You know, it was huge. Yeah. So like for me, Bob and the pressman and Mr. Kringle, like these are, these are top notch tracks, but it's, a I mean, there, it's
4: Eric. We can see Yeah. Like the pressman. It's clearly telling, it's just telling a story about a guy that like writes for the newspaper late at night and the way he tells that story and paints that picture is so awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like it really makes you actually that whole album, everybody always talks about and by everybody, I mean, I don't know, a few people on the internet claim it's a dark album and it kind of is. Some of the subject matter is dark, but that album really does give me a vibe where like I can't see things that are much further than like my hand in the darkness. Right. I don't know what it is, but uh, for the most part, it's got a darkness to it, even if it's not just like, you know, these songs are all about suicide or something like that, which it's not. There's just a all pervading, encompassing, suffocating darkness to that. Maybe it's just the the dourness of imagining that you're at the DMV. It's so <laughs> right. overpowering. And By yeah. the way, again, back Another to like jokes, how every time you go to the DMV, you think of that song every right. time, every time. You know, you do. every time, every time, every time.
3: Uh, Mark, you in our in our writers room text thread, you definitely brought up the Fisherman's Chronicles, um, and I just wanted to open the door for you to get back into that.
2: So there was four uh, songs, uh, part of the Fisherman's Chronicles: John the Fisherman being the first one, Fish on being the second one, Old Diamondback Sturgeon being the third one, and then uh, on Green Naga Hide, there was uh, the Last Salmon Man, and. All of these songs are really solid, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, John the Fisherman is probably number one. Uh, Fish On has a really cool feature where it feels like you're actually fishing or just hearing the process of fishing uh, towards the end. Those are some fantastic songs. And obviously, uh, Les Claypool is just infatuated with the sport of fish, the sport of fishing. um, And uh, he wants to bring that to song but uh they're all really solid i don't know if you guys would agree with my assessment on that that uh every one of the fisherman chronicles are are good
4: i would i Mm. think you could make it i think you can make an ep out of those and it would be fine yeah i like them all yeah fish on has a great a great a
2: great hook really does
4: fish on also has some great drums
2: Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. There's a lot of drumming going on because like, it really does sound like a battle of someone, a fish on the hook and then just trying to reel them in and reel them out, reel them in. Um, so good battle between man and fish. So we'll skip over the next uh, album that was in the, uh, discography 1994 did also see the release of a first Les Claypool side project called sausage. Um, it featured the original one of the original uh, lineups of Primus, which was Jay Lane and uh, Todd Hooth. They do have some great songs off of that. Um, the Riddles Are Abound Tonight, Prelude to Fear, uh, Toys 1988, which is a kind of a darker spin on the Toys Go Winding Down, uh, Girls for Single Men. These are songs that Les actually brought back out during his uh, fearless flying frog ber- days because both Jay Lane and Todd Hooth found themselves part of that contingent um, but we're going to skip over 1995 Tales from the Punch Bowl um, because we're going to be talking about that particular record track by track let's um, talk about
4: Sausage for a minute Sure, I think Sausage is a good indicator of I think it's, I think it's good it's, it's, uh, it's got tight songs uh, the production is kind of uh, not that good. Um, I mean, it, the video for "Riddles Are Abound Tonight" I think was on Beavis and Butthead," wasn't it? Or... Yeah.
2: Yep. And, I, uh, that, like they're all wearing blue leotards, and it looks yeah. It, yeah.
4: That's what <laughs> inspired the Great Cornholio, which was a uh, national uh, movement uh, from YouTube. That's Beavis right. And, and uh, I, I think the two things of sausage that. A lot of it reminds me of the band Morphine. I, because I think it shows, uh, and all, Les was a fan of Morphine, and it makes sense they were kind of a bass-centric band. Mm-hmm. But I think it shows without guys like Herb or Lair, how, only how far you can get with a great bass. And it, it definitely, I think it's a good album, but Primus became what they were, because of uh, Lair and Herb. And yes. Yes. you see that when you listen to Sausage. And especially like Lair, Lair's guitar playing is Lair's guitar playing is as unique as, as Les Claypool's bass playing is. With Les's bass playing you've got a guy who treats the bass almost like a lead guitar or yeah at times and kind of takes control of the song. Meanwhile you've got Lair who can write some great riffs but he really is kind of like playing with watercolors half the time and textures. And uh, he creates sounds that almost like lay a foundation for like the bass is supposed to lay a foundation for a song. And it does with Primus. But Lair seems to like make the whole landscape that the song lives in. I don't know how else to put it, but his guitar squanches and and uh, Peaks and valleys and trips as guitar goes on. He, you, they really paint the whole picture for a lot of Primus songs. And when you listen to Sausage, you're like, oh, this is what Primus would be like if you don't have somebody like Lair in the band. Yeah. And, but, and still, though, when he wants to do a guitar solo, he can show you that he can shred. I mean, Lair's awesome. I think Lair's
2: a. I mean, not to underrated. do any disservice to Todd Hooth because a lot of the guitar melodies found on Frizzle Fry and Caesar Cheese do feature guitar melodies that were actually written by Todd Hooth, but I think that Lair just gives them another life that Todd's style of playing doesn't. Um, I mean, I I can't really compare the two because Todd Hooth is not I haven't heard any of the recordings that he did for those particular tracks, but I can tell you this uh, Lair just makes them seem like they're his own. Um and uh even though they're written potentially by somebody else, Lair brings his own style to it that just makes it just quintessentially Primus. So, yeah.
3: For my for my money, I like sausage. Uh, it's it's kind of darker. The production, you're right, is garage okay. band quality. Uh, it's not goofy at all. Less is not going goofy lyrics, which it's interesting to see him kind of like in a kind of darker zone lyrically. Um, and yeah, I mean, the other members aren't, aren't as showy as less. And for that, less is definitely more subdued on this album, but it, 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 it's got a good atmosphere to it and it's, I don't know. I like it as kind of like a dark art spin-off as Primus, probably one of my favorite side projects of Primus. Um, but for that being said, I bought it when it came out cause I was like, I was primed. I was primed for it. I was already in a primus when it came out. I bought it and I loved it then. And then I completely forgot about it. I'm not joking, guys. I completely forgot about this album until we did this podcast. And then I dug it up and I was like, oh, shit, that that was great. So, yeah, whatever. If that paints a picture, I love it. But I also forgot about it.
2: Yeah. Um, So speaking of another side project. So um, after the recording of Tales from the Punch Bowl 1995, we had some news Uh, Tim, Herb, Alexander decided to call it quits. They were not really getting along, um, kind of what Steve had spoken to about earlier. Wes and Lair were a little bit more on uh, just really good friend terms. And Herb just was kind of the third wheel, and he just kind of felt that he uh, had said that he all needed to say in Primus, and it was time to look for other projects. So that created a void behind the kit. Um, and certainly Herb was a uh, a really integral part of the Primus sound. He had very intricate um, drum fills and just a drumming style that just really wasn't going to be easily replicated. Um, so they searched high and low, and uh, I honestly don't know what the audition process looked like. It could have honestly been less picking up the phone and calling his uh, old friend who was in Primus for a certain time back in the day before Herb actually joined the band, but he broke his foot in a skateboard accident and he couldn't continue. But uh, that man was Brian Brain Mantia. His nickname was Brain, uh, kind of a ses- session musician. I can't remember what other bands that he had found himself into. Uh, but before he actually started Primus, uh, Les Claypool took him out on the road for another side project called Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel that contained um Wes Claypool, brain Mantia, uh gentlemen from the other Bay Area band who are as wacky uh Merv um I think his name is like Mark Cahoe or something like that uh or I'm thinking of Brian Keho who but anyways uh, so anyways, there was uh a tour on that um great solo record by les claypool had some excellent songs like um running the gauntlet uh the awakening um highball for the devil those were uh, and of course the song holy mackerel "Hendershot," which is this great surf guitar um put on a hell of a show uh but uh I don't know. Do you guys have anything you want to mention on Holy Mackerel or should we just talk about the Brown album?
3: Uh, just, just that I had also bought this when it came out and, um, I was kind of feeling myself straying from Primus. I felt this one was a little like, uh, you know, it was a little jammy, a little folky kind of moving away from, from my taste. Cause I was, I was getting pretty hard and heavy into industrial at this point. Um, but it was catchy nonetheless. Um, and I just, I think I've told this story before, but I, uh. Still, they, I, I, me and some friends at school uh, bought, that also liked uh, Primus bought tickets to see the Holy Macro in San Francisco, and I was all approved to go. And then, the last possible minute, my parents changed their mind. They didn't know my friends that were driving me. They didn't trust them. Told me I couldn't go, and so uh, I, just, I had to give my ticket away. Um, and That's then my dad tried to make yeah my dad tried to make it up to me by taking me to. Uh, bridge benefit concert where i saw bowie and you know pearl jam and 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 other bands so pretty trade-off right
2: i mean you got to see some icons i mean uh i did enjoy myself quite a bit at the holy mackerel show it was a very intimate affair it was kind of like a club more so than like an arena or a uh a larger venue um so it was nice uh, to kind of be like pretty much right there uh, having les claypool play right in front of you um and i was also on crutches because i had just broken my ankle so wasn't gonna miss it
3: but the... <laughs> when i when i saw the punch bowl tour i was on crutches because i had a hip surgery
2: that's oh just, man just look at that funny
3: kindred uh, spirits look at that
2: um But the Brown album was released in 1997, and uh, I was looking forward to this. I was still very, very deep into my Primus love, even though, you know, I was also getting into industrial, more darker music, such as, should I say, it Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Corn, Tool, uh, a little bit of Skinny Puppy, definitely Ministry. um, But I still, you know, carried the torch. Uh, for Primus so the Brown album comes out the summer of 97 I got it first on vinyl record raced home put it on and heard an album that sounded like it was recorded during the Civil War everything sounds so muddy it looks like you're listening to one of those sepia toned Civil War photographs Um, and I think that's by (laughs) that's by design it really is The drum sound, incredibly large and heavy. Everything is super analog. It's like, you can hear the bass drum echoing in every fucking song. Um, Maybe the best
3: named album of all time. I mean, as far as like appropriate, appropriate to the sound of the music.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, this is Tom Waits' apparently favorite Primus record because it sounds like it needs a good wash, as he says. And uh, I agree with him. But it does have some really great highlights. Uh, the opening track, which is not really a song, but it just kind of plods along like an elephant. Uh, the Return of Savington Willoughby, it, it does it for me like layers, like, like that weird guitar riff that he's, that he's uh, employing is uh, fantastic. Fisticuffs is great. Over the Falls is one of the best Primus songs out there. I think it's one of I think it's my wife's favorite Primus song. Uh, Shake hands with beef uh, is a very beefy sounding. Um Puddin, tain Bob's party time lounge. Duchess in the proverbial mind spread rest and bones and one of their best closers out there is Arnie. Uh, Remember yes. this day. Um, that is some haunting reverb guitar work, folks. Is this
3: their their biggest
4: track list too?
2: Yeah, I think so. I like I, what, 17 tracks or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty. It's a big one.
4: It's amazing. It has 17 songs on it and it is eminently more enjoyable than some of the later albums that have six songs and go on for 17 hours. I yeah, I think the brand albums are most consistent record. I stand by that. Maybe Frizzle Fry is the only one that is more consistent, but I have very few skippable tracks on that album for me. Maybe Kalamazoo might be the only one that I, that I would consider skipping. But it's it's harmless enough. But I mean, yeah, like all the songs, I think Willoughby, golden boy. This cuffs over the falls, shake hands with beef, rest and bones. Cotting town Chasting was a Chasting of the Re- chastising of the red All right. Yeah.
2: Uh, something like that. Putting chastising
4: chastising. I mean, putting Tame might be the most ridiculously named song that actually is a great song. Um, nah, 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 hats off. Nah, nah, nah. I love hats off. Arnie, I, I, I subscribe to the Brian album wholeheartedly. Part of it might be because, like I said earlier, it was the first Primus album that came out after I got into the band. Um, but I think it's, I think it's almost flawless. It's yes, it's, produ- it's, it's got really, it's very analog. It's an analog album. They, they went for it. That's the whole point. They're like, all right, we've done all this digital who's it's and what's it's on the last few records, uh, especially Tales from the Punch Bowl. To uh, interesting effects as far as production-wise goes, why don't we take it take it down a notch and produce something that sounds like uh, it was done in uh, you know John Bonham's castle back in the Led Zeppelin days? And they got a drummer who also hits as hard as John Bonham, and I think it's a good mix. I am a very very big fan of the Brown album. I probably out of the three of us, I definitely am the the one waving its flag the uh, the highest.
3: I, I like this album. Um, contrary to you, I was actually kind of on my way out the door with Primus when this dropped. Um, not excusably, it just my tastes were going elsewhere. And But I still, it wasn't because they switched their drummer and they had the, like, I actually liked the production when it came out. I was like, man, that sounds, that sounds raw. Like that, I, I was kind of into the production sound. Um, it's a little long, um, I guess, you know, uh, I'm going to compare it to uh an album that you know I've had people push back on me as not being great but Gub by uh by Pigface is also like a raw garage, just just uh just uh, an analog album and it gets a little samey and I think the same thing happens to the Brown album but the songwriting on the Brown Brown album is so
4: strong it's some of All right it, let's hold on. Yeah. Pigface Come on, they're they're lucky if they write an actual song on any of their albums. No, no. What I just, mean, I, I just mean, I just they're very repetitive. No, no, and I, that, that's if fair. You listen to these, if you listen to this, yeah, there's like 17 songs. Yeah, I'd say from song to song, most of them don't sound like each other.
3: Yeah, no, I just meant I just meant an album that is very raw in the analog sound, contrary to Gubb... This one actually has really good, diverse songwriting. Actually, in my opinion, some of Les Labels best songwriting. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's, he's doing that thing with his voice where he doesn't actually fall into hillbilly mode too much. He kind of does his, like, almost, like, ominous, uh, echoey, uh, like, almost fr- fragile singing, which I actually really like that voice of Les Leopold. Um, I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, and it's all over this thing. Um, yeah, Actually, no, I, th- I
4: think this one has some of his better lyrics on it too.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I think, uh, weirdly, he they were they were. Uh, I was thinking about this today. Uh, if you would just go two years down in ra- rock radio, maybe three years down in rock radio, garage rock would make a comeback with the Hives and the White Stripes and the Vines, and it was very similar production style, just kind of done with more bigger budget. Um, and i i think primus perfected it on the brown album i think it's i think it's great I, this is a, this is definitely a top notch album primus
4: i i missed i missed the talk about holy mackerel i'd step out for a second i like the holy mackerel quite a bit um it's got a huge member of musicians on it including merv haggard which i like merv from or mark haggard from the band merv but uh it also uh forgive me if you guys talked about this but just the amount of musicians they started using on Highball at the Devil is definitely a future vision of all the revolving doors that people Les will use on his uh, solo project. Um, some of those same names even. But uh, I think also Holy Mackerel is kind of in addition to having, uh, well, was Brain on drums on that? Or is he just on it live, Mark?
2: Uh, just on live. You know, Les actually played a lot of the drums on oh, that and record. Oh, did too. Okay. Yeah.
4: But just, I think that Highball at the Devil... It's kind of lounge atmosphere vibe. It's uh, slower tempos. I think it definitely har- was a harbinger where the, the Brown album was going, but also it shows the eclectic taste of Les Claypool. I think it was a good choice to have that be a solo record. I mean, it's got some, it's got some funk on it. It's got some like R&B on it. It's got some lounge stuff on it. It's definitely different than Primus and, I think it's a, I think it's a fun record and uh, it's got one of my favorite Les Claypool Pantheon songs of all time, which is Hendershot. I love Hendershot.
2: Yeah, that's got some great surf guitar. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the song um, Highball with the Devil, too. That's a good one. that fucking rhythm melody is uh, ingrained um, it's
4: a, yeah, it's a little, it's a little too haphazard. I think, I think it could have been an EP. Maybe get rid of some of the songs, but yeah, especially overall, towards I, the end. Yeah, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. And at at the time, I wish it would have been him live with you. But uh, I'd I love the fact that just the prolific was just what this guy was all about. I mean, if it's not an EP with Primus, then he's starting to put out solo records or or repurposing old bands like Sausage. It's right, pretty cool. But then the Brown album, we just talked about that and then the brown album doesn't uh doesn't light the sales charts on fire and uh
1: hmm.
4: we'll get we'll get to the the LP that follows it in a few minutes but in between before anti-pop comes out uh rhinoplasty the EP came out in 1998 yeah and i think we should make time for rhinoplasty because it was uh, another covers EP has some live stuff on it but it has one of my favorite covers of all time.
2: Amos Moses, which was yes. Yeah, that's a good Amos one. Amos
4: Moses again. Amos Moses. Well, the, if it came, it's another thing like when you, you and your buddies, it was a, it was a punchline into itself, but I would just one of us would just say, uh, oh, I came over the line now. Damn it, it was just like something, something because the alligator bit. Him. Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, yeah. No, like well,
4: alligator, uh, Louisiana Swamp Boy.
2: Yeah, no, I I love that song, Amos Mobile That, it's got that like kind of just groove to it, um, and uh, I actually do appreciate uh, this EP a little bit more than uh, Miscellaneous Debris, even though. Yeah, uh, I I do like Miscellaneous Three quite a bit, but you get to The Family and the Fishing Net is a great song. Uh Scissor Man is another XTC song that uh is goofy as shit. Snip 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 snip. Um you get to hear Primus do a Metallica song, uh, the thing that should not be. Um a different, way different version of Too Many Puppies, which is It's really like slowed down. Uh it's like the uh Scissor version of that. Um, but yeah, it's a fun one. And then, of course, Videoplasty also uh, uh, was released right alongside that where you had some some of the newer music videos along with a full live concert again shot in the same Phoenix Theater in Petaluma that they shot the Jerry was a race car driver video. So, yeah. It's also where Eric and I saw E-40. That's right.
4: And keep the Sneak. It's very true. Amos no. Moses was a Jerry Reed song. Jerry Reed, who wrote the uh, theme song to Smoky and the Bandit, Eastbound and Down. And it's just so down home. It's Just backwoods. It's so good. And yeah. uh, that's definitely a tangent that Primus or Primus related stuff can go into. It's just the, the backwoods stuff.
3: And, that uh, is
2: really good. It's not on that EP, but it is on videoplasty of their version of the devil went down to Georgia. Very good. Very that,
3: good. That, and it's perfect. Yes. They, they, it's, it's, it's great.
4: It's also cut from the same cloth. Is that from this, this videoplasty?
2: It is on videoplasty, yeah. but okay. I, yeah, I don't, was... I think it was just released separately elsewhere. And then they just included it on videoplasty. I think they called themselves,
3: they, they called themselves something different too. They didn't call themselves primus for that.
2: No.
4: Yeah, yeah, they and then I think Merv Haggard was on that as well.
2: Yeah. And he did. He did The Voice, I think, for uh, The Devil. Um, or Johnny or something like that. Or maybe Johnny. Yeah. Uh,
4: yeah I, don't, I don't have the credits the for that I'm the best that ever. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was a pretty faithful rendition, if not better, version of The Devil Went Down in Georgia. Uh, the The musicianship is amazing. Again, Brain is a great drummer just because they dialed him back a bit for the Brown album. That guy can play many different drum styles.
1: Yeah, of and, course.
4: And... Uh, He can do he can he can get hyper fast or he can play old style wash bin drum type stuff. Uh, (laughs) He's pretty cool. And uh, the fiddle parts are pretty good. And uh, the claymation video for it is out of this world. Absolutely. Um, The guy that did the Night Before Christmas. uh,
3: Is that a
2: Henry Selick thing? Yeah, he helped with it. If he well, it was you actually
3: before, or, one of his pro- protégés. I don't know his name, but he was the, actually the guy that directed uh, Corpse Bride was the one okay. that directed that video. Well, that guy helps but, with it. Yeah, but he and was that, a protégé of Selick. Yeah,
4: Yeah, and it's, it's just a claymation video that tells the same story of the devil went down Georgia and the boy battling the devil. It's, it's wonderful. It's just, in that video, there's this part where all of a sudden <laughs> there's these chickens that are in the background But then they look at them and they start like dancing. (laughs) Every time it gets me, the dancing chickens. Oh yeah, I love that video.
2: Go ahead, Eric.
3: I was just gonna say you have a choice between uh, you know Oreo cookies or uh, you know uh, QAnon uh, hydrox when it comes to Devil Went Down to Georgia. And unfortunately, the original version of it is the uh, the flat earther hydrox. So go with the Primus Oreos (laughs) on that particular song
2: i chuck daniels uh on the wrong side of history i'm, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah that's right
3: yeah no i'm i don't have anything to add to rhinoplasty i i'm not crazy about it um but it, uh, getting a little into jammy hillbilly uh primus not not necessarily my my primus
2: your cup of tea all right fair right. enough um okay so then in 1999 we get um yeah the end of the line for Brian Brain Mantia. And uh, it uh, is also getting to be the end of the line for their relationship with Interscope Records as well. So record sales were obviously not going in the way that they wanted them to. Um, Bands such as Limp Bizkit and Korn were absolutely outselling them. The whole Primus alternative sound was just not uh, getting the attention that no, any of the re- major record lab- labels were really going to be poning up any of the cash for. So it was kind of an identity crisis for Primus. So they decided let's make this our quote unquote duets or collaborative record. So they brought in a whole bunch of producers that they were friends with. Um, Matt Stone from South Park produced a uh, track. And of course Primus was asked in uh, 1996, right before the Brown album was released in, uh, to do the South Park theme song.
3: Yeah, we forgot to mention that. That was actually, yeah. that actually made them a household name if you weren't already a Primus fan. Like, absolutely, that was, that was massive.
2: Um, but uh, Fred Durst of Limb Bizkit was also asked to produce one of the tracks on there. Tom Morello, who was a friend of Les and friend of Primus from back in the Lollapalooza days, because they would go on tour together in the early 90s. So uh, Tom Morello did two tracks. Um, Stuart Copeland from The Police did a track um, who eventually then went to uh, collaborate with Les Claypool even further in the band Oysterhead with Trey Anastasio from Fish. Um, And he also brought in James Hetfield from Metallica, Jim Martin from uh, Faith No More, formerly of Faith No More at that point. He He had left the band. Um, but uh, this album for me is an absolute mess i feel like it's too many cooks in the kitchen Uh, primus is definitely throwing everything against the wall this is les claypool's personally least favorite record the tension within the band was just uh reaching a fever pitch and it wasn't just a good place to be so Uh Uh um it seems to be a record made by the music industry if like I I know that there was some uh, autonomy and a lot of independence and the record label giving less a little bit of a uh, long leash. But I feel like this is the record that received a lot of notes like uh, this is it, guys. Uh, We need a hit out of you or it's just that's it. That's it. Right. And you're um, you're right. You're right. And that pressure just probably got to the band. But there are some there are some highlights on here for me personally the song the anti-pop is a good song uh Mm -hmm. eclectic electric i that hits my sensibilities uh final voyage of the liquid sky and the closer is also really good with um tom wait's coattails of a dead man it's very good um and that's where you'll also find the heckler uh the studio version but, uh, Eric, what do you, what do you think of uh,
3: Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and I, and I wasn't a Primus fan when it came out. I, um, I was at working at Dimple and I probably on one of your recommendations checked it out or we listened to it at work one night, um, later just to see kind of what happened. Um, and it does, you know, in a way it's sad in the sense that like, it's the only one they didn't produce themselves. It's, uh, like you said, too many cooks. It's... It, it, I listened to it this week and kind of had fun with that. Like, Oh, where are they going to go next? Like, you know what I mean? Like that doesn't lead to a cohesive album and it ultimately hurts it more than helps it. It was kind of interesting for me to do that this week. But, um, yeah, I mean, get a song like "Lacquerhead," and that may be like the most
2: rock pop
3: rock by the numbers that Primus ever was. And...
2: I hate that song. <laughs> yeah. You're mentioning of it is, yeah and it was their single off the record. I yeah. Yeah. don't like that song. I think it's the most clunky song in their catalog.
3: Right, and apparently, according to the book, that one was produced by Fred Durst, and all he did to produce it was he just danced with them while they played it. <laughs> like, what? <laughs>
2: absolutely fucking book that shit right there <laughs> yeah
3: i know that's that's exactly it's you got the touch yeah exactly that's, that's that's all that is right there my god uh yeah so that i mean yeah i, I mean if you, i don't know maybe at the time if you weren't a primus fan and you heard it it's like okay that's an interesting radio rock song but it really just sounds like it was compressed of ones and zeros with less singing over it when you hear it it's it's not terribly totally interesting um yeah, there, I mean there's some moments I like like Tom Morello's songs, like um the book implies there was some tension between him and Larry. Uh in the sense that like you know Larry was the guitar player and Tom was coming with this. Tom just brings in these like little like fret-tapping background things, uh, and Larry still does his own thing, which I I, I think those work pretty well. They don't necessarily sound like Primus, but they're You know, it's a it's a nice little touch. It works very well with the music. I don't have a problem with that. Um Primus does ultimately produce half the album, basically, right? They do like four or five songs. Um and and those are all those are all absolutely fine. Um I mean it's not a it's it's not a terrible album. It's a little exhausting to listen to it. Um, but there are some high moments, um, especially anti pop and and coattails. Those are those make it worth the
2: trip. Yeah. Steve, what do you think of the anti or uh, anti-pop
4: counterpoint? Not nearly as bad as his reputation. I think that uh, I think that since we know there was strife behind it, and then they used a few different producers, I think that paints our opinions of the record. I I really just I, I don't think it's as bad as everybody makes it out to be when it first came out. It definitely wasn't my favorite Primus album, but I didn't like take it out of my CD player and throw it across the room. <laughs> um, and revisiting <laughs> it now like i thought i was like hey this actually i think it flows okay i like the bookend of the start of the coattail and the end of the coattail to the dead man yeah. on it yeah um i think that the song anti-pop is a great song i think electric uncle sam is good uh eclectic "Electric," is a pretty good another one of their jam songs that uh you know, you could. I, I think you can put that one right up there with with Hamburger Train and the other, the other Jamtastic songs and some of their other records. I, I I don't think it's that bad. I just I think I, I I think we tell ourselves it's bad because we were told it's bad. And I'm not dismissing your guys' opinions, but I don't think it's as bad as Reputation says it is. My no, it's, no,
3: I it's 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 easily like a six out of ten or something like. It's, I don't know.
4: I don't know if I like it more or less because it's Primus. If another band put this same album out and it wasn't Primus, would I like it as much, or do I, or do I like it less because I think Primus can do better? I don't know, but I don't think it's that bad. I think it's got enough. There's enough there to warrant its existence. I mean, the band said it themselves with their greatest hits album. They they all can't be zingers, right?
2: All can't be you know? zingers. That's right.
4: Yeah, and uh, this definitely wasn't a zinger, but I don't think it's that bad. And also. It gets its average gets brought up a lot because the closing track is one of my favorite Primus songs, if not one of my favorite songs of all time. I said that about John the Fisherman. I'm saying it again about the Coattails of a Dead Man. She rides. I love that song. That's that great. Song's great. Yeah. yeah, so good.
3: We gave we gave it some love on our uh, our guest appearance episode, collaboration episode, or whatever. And uh, I still get excited when that comes on. It's great.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. So 1999. It uh, essentially. Primus were really close to breaking up. I mean, uh, because of the tension from the recording session and uh, the subsequent tour, it, they did the Family Values 99 tour. Um, I believe both of you saw that. Yes, um, I was there. I was there. Um, they were good. Yeah, they were good. Who else was there? You got Method Man and Red
3: Band, You got Filter. You got mm-hmm. Crystal Method. Those are all great. And then you also have Stained and Limp Bizkit.
4: Yeah, no. Primus is the highlight, and uh, looking back, filter would have been filter would have been the second light, and that was Great. it. Yeah. I met the man in Red Manor entertaining. Right, but...
3: right.
2: Yeah. Um, but uh, Les went off to do his uh, fearless flying frog brigade. Um, Lair went on to do some other side projects called No Force Field, and that was kind of like happening concurrently, um, and of course. Uh, brain absolutely I think he probably went to Guns N' Roses at this point maybe or at least yeah, he went to Guns N' Roses him, him and Les
4: also they, they worked on that Buckethead album that came out the same year as Antipop I think
2: that's right Uh, monsters right. and robots that's right
4: you guys ever listen to that one
2: No, I never did. I'm not a big Buckethead guy. Um, I appreciate the fact that he exists. He's a good guitar player, no doubt. Um, but I've never listened to one of his, uh, solo records all the way through. I think
4: as a Les Claypool fan, it's worth listening to at least once. It's super funk space robot music, but Les has vocals and a couple of tracks. You can definitely tell it's Les playing the, uh, the bass. I think Brain's on it too. I think that Buckethead literally has like 30 albums. I'm not saying like, he literally, I think has 30 records. Um, but Monsters and Robots, I think, is if you're a fan of Les Claypool, it's listening. It's worth listening to just once. That's my review.
2: But in uh, 2003, Primus, uh, along with Herb, uh, reunited and they released an EP called Animals Should Not Try to Act Like People. It, uh, can, Record scratch. What?
4: Shouldn't we talk about what happened in between then, though, in 2001 and...
2: What, like the Fry Brigade and Oysterhead and all that?
4: Well, it's just briefly. I mean, well, I think, uh, honestly, I
3: think Oysterhead is a harbinger of dark, dark days ahead. So go go for it.
4: That's why I want to talk about it.
2: (laughs) So, okay, no problem. We can absolutely talk some side projects. So uh, Les obviously is lost in the woods um, and he's really trying to I mean, this is the height of Bonnaroo. So I feel that Les is really <laughs> getting into that crowd. And your your government True. mules, well, uh, your uh string cheese incidents. String cheese at, at incidents. Point, Les, yep.
4: At some point around the t- millennium, he just he starts hanging out with jam guys. <laughs> just well, yeah.
3: apparent appara- so this is a good story from the book, but he so apparently around the time the band was breaking up, he had kids and like He was like, I'm the only guy of our friends that has kids. You know, it's a weird, you know, experience where nobody asks you to hang out or you cancel a couple times and nobody calls you back. And I think that's, that could be a thing. I don't know. I, you know, I, I had kids kind of early, but I don't feel like I, you know, you just make yourself available when you can. But anyways, regardless, he was in a place that apparently opened him up to jamming with this this guy from Fish. And uh Stuart Copeland, who's the guy from Fish? What's his name? Uh, Trey
2: Anastasio. yes
3: Trey Anastasio. And apparently, he showed up, and it was going to be this this jam thing. And they're and they're like, "Well, should we like plan songs or covers?" And they're like, "No, man, this is the jam audience. You just literally show up and jam. You don't have anything planned." And that and he's like, "Wow, that's amazing." And that really appealed to him to not have to plan anything. (laughs) And I think it shows. I, I I've had friends over the years that are like jam band fans and. Like they literally don't give two shits about the studio albums. All they care about is the live performance, and that's where all the magic happens. And I guess maybe there's something to that, but I think for my for my money, I, a lot I give a lot more weight to good songwriting, which is not happening with improv. But um, I will I
4: say mean, this: okay, a lot of, uh, okay, a it's lot Steve, of Primus, a lot of Primus. I think a lot of Primus songs, even though I think they're well written, they were mutations of jams or fucking around in the sure. studio. They started there. And then I mean but... and I, I, you know when they did the the very I thought, well done Woodstock performance they hadn't played together in 6 months. A long time to go without playing. That's true. And they just winged it and actually pulled it off. Yeah. So I could see how that thrill would uh appeal to let. Right. It.
3: Right, 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 right.
2: Yeah. I mean from 2001 to, I want to say, 2008, he was really at the height of, I am, like, into this scene. And I some of it's good. I mean, honestly, the first two live sets of the Colonel Claypool's Fearless Flying Frog Brigade is actually really good. I mean, they have some covers of, they have a King Crimson cover of Thela Hun Gijit, which is great. Um, they have do some uh, Holy Mackerel stuff. Um, they bring out some sausage stuff. Um, and of course, Pink Floyd. I mean, their rendition of uh, the Animals record is uh, fantastic. And they don't really fuck around too much, to be honest with you. They don't like go into these 20-minute like interludes where you'd have to be on uh, LSD in order to enjoy it. Um, so I feel like that is honed in. And even Oysterhead, for that matter, despite having you know, someone from fish in there. I feel like the songs themselves like are relatively straight into the point and some exactly my cup of tea. There's some good stuff on there, but for the most part, I'm just like, all right. Hey, um, I
4: I neglected an oysterhead for 20 years just because I knew the guy from fish is on it, yeah. which may be shame on me, but also why you only live once. Why do I want to spend time with the guy from fish?
3: It's yeah. too bad, but, too, because I like Stuart Copeland like.
4: No, but I, Eric, I think it's actually worth, I think it's a worthwhile record. It's it's not terrible. It's not. No, I think there's, they never go too far into, into jam world. Well, I owned it. I owned it. I bought
3: it. I bought it. So I bought it. I bought it. I remember when I bought it, I was in college at Sonoma State. I bought it. And that at that point I was being influenced by a girlfriend to wear clogs. Yellow slacks and enjoy uh, Ben Harper and just generally uh, you know the light side of jam music and I and I did not I did not go into it but that was that I was I was I was being pushed towards that and I and I, and I
4: it didn't do much for me but
3: yeah no it's 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 fine it's fine it's I think I think
4: Trey like. and his voices go well together actually yeah and I think the song Oz is ever floating is cool there's a song called pseudo suicide that's really cool it it never goes too far into jam world I, it was better than no. i expected yeah the, the bar was the bar was low i expected it to be terrible so just getting like oh this is okay it was good enough
2: i imagine Stuart copeland had a big part of that let's let's uh let's rein this shit in guys yeah, yeah. exactly
4: Stuart copeland's no uh, uh critters bugging um ah! speaking of which now on the other hand the purple onion you can give that album back to the indians I am. That's that is where I see this jam stuff happening too much. And also this like Tim Burton goofiness with like xylophones, xylophones, too much percussion. It's like, okay, Herb's not here anymore. So what I'm going to do is everyone's going to get a couple of spoons and we're going to build a song out of it. That happens way too often. My
2: liking. Yeah. And he's bringing out this instrument that he created in his shack called the whamola, where it's just like a, a single bass string hit with a drumstick. It's oh, it's this, too much, yeah. The,
3: the whammy bass, whether it's that or just a pedal effect, will
4: come, <laughs> that will come
3: to stain. Yeah, it will come to stain some bass playing from here on out too.
4: When 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 Les is leaning on that stuff, I'm like, dude, you're one of the bass, best bass players of all time. You don't need to be doing this weird fart laser bass.
2: Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are some okay tracks. Uh, I like that song Up on the Roof again. Um, Cosmic Highway is pretty good. And um, the second David McAlaster that doesn't sound like a Sesame Street song um, is pretty good. Um, but that record is... Uh, You have to really be one of those folks that's uh, heavily converted. And uh, it's just not doing it for me. And not only that, then you've got his other two solo records with what was called the Les Claypool Fancy Band. And that was Of Wales and Woe, and then Of Fungi and Foe. Those are two different records, folks. And honestly, uh, they should not have been in existence.
4: No, they should be... B sides at best. They should be free on the internet. I mean, that's where the theme song from Robot Chicken comes from, and that's what all of the music sounds like. It really does. It is. If Les Claypool's name wasn't on it, I would never listen to it. It's all this found percussion stuff again. It's robotus and nonsense. I don't. I
2: nonsense.
4: Like, there's one song out of the whole batch called Filipino Ray that I like, and I think I just like it because I like Filipino. <laughs> but uh, yeah, too much clackalack nonsense. It's uh not good.
2: Um, but in 2003, Primus did reunite. Um, they went on tour. Uh, we saw that. It was the Tour de Fromage, and they played Sailing of the Seas of Cheese all the way through. Um, and uh, Herb came out, and uh, it was great, honestly. Um, I like that little EP uh, quite a bit. It has a collection of every one of their music videos. Um, I like the song The Carpenter and the Dainty Bride a lot. I think that song is a fucking shredder. That's um, a good one. Mary the Ice Cube is a uh, kind of this weird atmospheric thing, um, and then My Friend Fats—that's another one like that just raises the hair on my arms.
4: Mary and the Ice Cube though has some crazy good drumming on it.
2: Yeah, it does. Um,
4: and the last track is that My Friend Fats is yeah. it the last track. Yeah, yeah that, that thing becomes like a space and time rock. Of yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because that one definitely my has some of those meandering jam tendencies. Let me tell but it also reminds you they were prog fans, too. And yeah, Progginess and jamminess does intersect. And uh, I think on that EP, it goes into a good place. I'm a big fan.
2: Yeah, it's the power of the drumming, man. Like, having her back in the With band, it just adds that layer. That, that chemistry's back for me. That's all. Well,
4: the,
3: well, one thing he did that was important to her was he miked all... He had, like, probably 12 tongs. Or like little mini timpanis, and he mic'd every single one and panned them to different speakers. And so, in their own way, they become kind of their own instrument, uh, separate from the drums. So when he plays those, you've got you've got a flutter of notes that is, you know, different than just a drum beat.
2: So skipping a little bit ahead, I I mean, so between two thousand and three and two thousand eleven. Um, it was pretty quiet on the primus front. Uh, Herb did not stick around. They would tour every now and then. Um, Les probably went on started his own wine company, Claypool Cellars during this part. They just were on hiatus. Uh, but in 2011, they decided let's kickstart this thing again. Herb was not interested to rejoin. So they call up J lane, uh, you know, back in the day and they released the record green Naga hide and, uh, Jay Lane definitely brings his own presence, so very different than Brain, very different than Herb. Um, I feel on this particular record, he's really sitting on that hi hat quite a bit. Um, it, it's everything is just very uh, trebly. That's what's really setting, yeah, trebly, very setting the tempo on that. Um, it's I think it's got a collection of okay to good songs on this one with some social commentary throughout. Um, my problem with this record is I feel I'd have listened to it about 10 times, and uh, it just still remains somewhat forgettable. But every time that I listen to it, I'm like, oh, this record is actually not too bad. Um, so every time I listen to it, I do find a little bit more appreciation for it. It is definitely not one of the ones that will ever crock, crack in the top tier for me. Uh, but some highlights The Last Salmon Man, Tragedies of Coming, Eyes of the Squirrel, and Jillies on Smack. Um, those are some of my personal highlights on this right.
4: Yeah, it's too meandering. It meanders too much. But, yeah, it uh, meanders too much. It needs, an, it needs an editor, and that's part of the problem in later days. like Boolean work. Um, but like and Cleave is good. Tragedies come, and I, I, I like that song title a lot. Yeah. And uh, you know, Les mentioned that he, that he wrote that song, and somebody died. And you know, another one of the songs, and Jerry was a race car driver, somebody dies, and then Bob, somebody hangs himself. And you start going through there, and then you know, this is Waylane. Uh, something happens to Steve. Uh, so tragedy happens a lot in their songs, actually. So I think it's a good yes. title for a song, Tragedies Come.
2: And it's such a like an upbeat, bouncy number, too. Yeah.
3: So can I, my, my problem at this, with this album and a little bit in the, on the last one too, and moving forward too, is Les Claypool spends a lot of time on his bass in the upper frets, the higher notes. Uh, and he always does that because he's more of a fret player and that's okay. That's why he's fucking amazing. But if you go back to the old stuff, he knew when you had to drop a low end in to really give like a drive to a song, to keep that. Like he was the bass player, but he was also the lead string player, and that was the kind of deal that Primus was always, but he he always knew he had a responsibility to the low end. <laughs> uh but honestly, these la- the, a lot of the last albums, he just hangs out in the upper strings because there's there's if you look at a a fretboard, I'm, I'm not going to get too technical here, but if you look at a fretboard, there's a lot more to do in the higher notes because the, the frets are much closer together. So I get the appeal, but th- that means you, you, you're forfeiting the low end entirely. And I, I don't know if you guys noticed this. I did. He's just hanging out up there pretty much here on out. And it does, it does leave a little bit of the drive, a little bit of the oomph to these songs. I can't find him. So the songwriting's not bad. The lyrics are not bad. His singing, I kind of enjoy old Les singing. It's, it's, it's working for me. But um, he's just having way too much fun with those high notes. And there's there, the, 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 something feels uneven.
2: Yeah, I could see that. It's actually a good description. Never considered that before. So uh, then in 2014, um, Jay Lane decides, you know what? I'm going to go focus back on, uh, some Grateful Dead nonsense. Uh, the rat dog that I think that he's in with Bob Ware, uh, from the Grateful Dead. Or hey, hey, of.
4: hey, I can't even think guy. Anything. anything Grateful Dead really is going to pay the bills.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, my God. I mean, if, uh, Jesus Christ, I mean, the, uh, the touring and the shows that they do, I mean, it just still sells out like amphitheaters. Um, But in 2014, Les comes up with this idea. He's always been fascinated with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So why not record an album of them doing the soundtrack from the Gene Wilder film? And um, not only that, they, in order to actually kind of goose record sales, um, they put a golden ticket in one of the records. uh, I think it was one of the vinyl records that gave you an exclusive VIP pass and all of that nonsense where you can go backstage and, but they even like made chocolate bars and they were fully leaning into this. And of course, you know, Herb was interested. He came back for this. So you've got Lair, Les, and Herb, the original uh, trio. And the sound of this record is very similar in style to Purple Onion. Probably not as many like xylophones, but just that, let's use whatever lying around as an instrument kind of feel to it um instead of the whimsy that you get from the original soundtrack it's kind of replaced with this almost abandoned factory eeriness um it's not horror it's just unsettling it's kind of the same tone as the film core line um it's just it's not one of my things to go to when it comes to primus um And it has some highlights on there. I do like the song Candyman. The claymation video that accompanies it is uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, Their version of Pure Imagination is uh, definitely different and eerie. Uh, Lair actually gets to do some uh, vocals on here with uh, I Want It Now. Um, It's from the Veruca Salt uh, piece from the movie. And uh, Farewell Wonkites is uh, kind of a neat instrumental. But for the most part, it's definitely for someone who's uh, really converted into Primus. This is not something that a casual fan should listen to.
4: Wow, Mark said way more nice things than I could ever find to say about this album. <laughs> I, I hate it. I didn't like it the first time I listened to it. As soon as I saw they were making it, I was like, oh, God, are you kidding me? Exhausting, right? Yeah, I was like, really? Last word. Like, at that at that too, 2014, I probably wasn't following Primus too closely. I probably read the article and was like, whoa, they put out an album called Green Naugahyde before this? I should check that out. Well, oh, chocolate bag. Oh, no. And yeah. uh, not good. I just it's too it's too slurpy and. Boggy and slow. Every song takes forever to get somewhere, and it never gets there. I'm not even a big like Charlie and Chalk Chop the Ch- Factory is whatever. Same me. I love Gene Wilder, but like I don't swear by that movie. It's not a classic movie to me. I don't. I don't. I don't worship it
2: like some people do. I just I
4: can't stand that record. It's it's just.
2: No, yeah, I mean, I, fair uh, enough. Biggest. I mean, honestly, I was, Oh yeah. Uh, Eric, what do you got?
3: Oh God. It's, 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 the, why does this exist category? The, it's uh, the Nader, right? That's definitely the, uh, the, the uh, worst yes, release, right? Uh, why? It's, yeah, they're just redoing songs that already exist for the most part. There's some original stuff in there, but for the most part, they're redoing stuff that already exists. Uh, and, and I like, I think, I think the original, Charlie, the Gene Wilder Charlie and Chocolate Factory is is great. It's a flawed film, but it's 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 weird, uh, and that should just exist on its own. I don't need to hear less singing over it. And yeah, the songs never go anywhere. There's no rock. There's not one moment of rock on the entire album. And uh, uh, you'd think at the very least with that those bass skills, the Oompa Loompa songs would be a fun situation, but no, they're just they're just molasses. Um. Yeah. It's it's trouble. This this, this, this album's trouble. I don't know why why.
2: So three years later, they decide to release another record. Uh, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Go for it.
4: Did they tour for this? Yes, <laughs>
2: they did. I mean, not only did they tour for it, but they made their own candy bars. They absolutely toured for it. Um, and I uh, they did the whole the whole thing. I mean, they would play other Primus songs, but they one hundred percent track uh you know these songs out. They were very, very proud of what they didn't did here. Man.
4: Imagine you're yeah. going to see Primus and you haven't been well, oh, Primus is back and you go and you see they you play this for a and, half hour. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
3: you and just get you just get Les Claypool and his Long Johns pretending to be Grandpa Joe yeah. in bed.
4: Yeah.
2: I know. Yeah. No, like it's uh it was a thing. And you
4: know Well Eric, now that you mentioned that, he you know, this was all twenty years earlier uh, predetermined when he wore his long johns and the jury was a race car driver video so it's all <laughs> yeah <tied laughs> he's all just tracks. waiting
3: waiting for his moment
4: to the make wait, it the warning yeah. signs were there decades before
2: but yeah 2017 the desaturating seven comes out which had its own um basis in a children's book called the Rainbow Goblins. It was an Italian author of children's books um, who uh, put that out, and
3: where they like eat colors or something, right? That's
2: right. So they're out to go and eat colors, and so now this record, I actually, it's okay for me. Like I do think it's an improvement over Primus in the Chocolate Factory. It's not exactly what I was expecting because it does still have that let's fuck around a little bit feel to it. There are some good ish songs on here um i do like the trek the scheme the dream and the storm which is you know there there's elements on a lot of these tracks that i'm like okay i see what they're trying to do here it's not too bad
4: the storm and the scheme i like those songs well right
2: um yeah
3: it's it's sonically interesting It, it 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 doesn't sound bad to your ears it doesn't sound necessarily like a waste of time it just uh like when we're talking about concept albums right it's like can a track stand by itself, you know? And I and I think it's even still a problem on this album, as far as songs standing by themselves, as far as being a bigger story. But uh, I will say it's 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 nicer on the ears than the Volnka, for sure.
4: Yeah, I think I think there's still. I mean, it's still pretty proggy, but I still think there are songs here, which is important. And I think the production's really good. I think you can hear all the instruments separate from each other again. I think musicianship is great which you always expect from this band and i think i think it's i hope i hope what this is is they've gotten the proggy jamminess out of their system with the desaturating seven, and the next album is just a regular rock album but eh, i i do like the desaturating seven. is it a go-to no but it's actually good background music i think yeah um which is not what i listen to primus for but it's not offensive like the chocolate factory is
2: yeah i mean i they definitely are obviously you know playing their own type of songs on this one so i don't feel like they're hewed in on uh you know just doing a cover album of a you know children's movie but they played this album in its entirety when they co-headlined uh a tour with mastodon and I'm sure that went over really well with Mastodon fans. It did
4: not. I have a, a coworker that went and he. Why? He you guys Primus. know your audience. Jesus. Exactly. But that is not the time to be doing this. But, uh when you're going. To, so like they also toured with Ministry in their last tour and they were smart enough when they toured with Ministry. No, I'm sorry. Slayer. Ministry
2: and Slayer. Both yeah, of them. No, there's, yeah. there's
4: ministry and Slayer on Slayer's last tour, which actually how did I don't know why I didn't go to that show. That's a dream ticket. Yeah, for me, but they knew their audience. They 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 played all you know. Jerry was a race car driver, and uh, Dan Blue Collar Tweakers, and you know, known Big Round Beaver. That's like they they stuck to the the hits or the hard songs. You do the same thing when you tour with Mastodon. You don't sure crack the sky is a progressive like uh, <laughs> one long song album, but you don't you don't do your version of that, which is a slurpy, uh ode to goblins eating colors. It's just a uh, So you had a coworker that went and he's like, I could not believe how boring Primus was, (laughs) which is sad because Primus, we started this off talking about how Primus got their record deal being energetic and awesome live. And I, uh, I think they've gotten back there. I haven't seen it myself, but their most recent experiment was doing this, uh, a tribute to Kings tour where they play Rush's A Farewell to Kings all the way through. A, know your audience there. They are knowing their audience. Rush fans and Primus fans is a Venn diagram that's almost a circle, yeah, and the first half of the show is an hour of Primus, and the second half is an hour of rush. That's awesome. yeah that's and so hopefully them covering a band that's not a jam band like Rush gets them to want to rock again, and I hope we see that in the next uh, the next studio album.
2: Yeah, I agree. So that was the history of Primus that took us to the current time. But uh, starting from the bottom, uh, from number Hold nine.
4: On. Hold on. Before we rank them, can we talk about some of the other just side projects real quick that we missed? Yeah, we've missed
3: some good ones. Yeah. Sure.
2: Yeah. Okay. So before we talk about the rankings, um, what are some of the other side projects that you feel that are good highlights? Uh,
4: we, will, we missed three that I, that I can see. First, uh, it's kind of back in the Jamland thing, but it's more the Funkland that bucket of bernie brains which is uh it's basically primus plus buckethead and bernie Worrell on keyboards um it's brainless claypool buckethead and bernie Worrell. um i don't i don't smoke enough pot for <laughs> the the fantastic <laughs> weirdness of it but i think it's a pretty cool record did you guys check that one out yeah yeah i've listened yeah. to that one a
2: couple times i mean it's very improvisational um in fact some of their uh live uh recordings they would actually make sandwiches for the uh studio or for the uh, uh audience so uh, they definitely i think they would write on the piece of paper and be like uh, like a mood or something like that and then just fucking go off into wonderland on on that one idea um but yeah, I mean, really all good musicians. It's just one of those things that um, you can't listen to every day. That's not my cup of tea, but there are some really cool little jammy stuff on there.
4: I mean, yeah, but compared to like a Whales and Woe. And, well, I'll uh, listen
2: to a Bucket of Bernie Brains. Absolutely. Purple Onion even. Yeah, I think it stands. Yeah, over those.
3: When it, when it comes to jam- with jammy stuff, if it's like, I guess if it's got like a root in funk where you know that at least like there's going to be a bass line and a drum line that are going to lock in. And not everybody is going into the stratosphere at the same time. Like, I'll I'll generally prefer that. So that I enjoyed
4: what I heard. Well, also you got, you got Buckethead there, and Buckethead's not a jammy guy. Buckethead's a weird like Steve Vai on acid shredder. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Kim, John Five, Steve Vai, uh, those types of crazy guys. It's, Eric, you checked that one out too? I yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's fine. All right, so that, that was that
2: was all right. And then a uh, duo to twang, which is him
4: and Mark Merv Haggard again.
2: Merv, who is the from the band Merv. I think that might be and Brian Keho with him. Uh, oh, I, didn't no. I, didn't, I didn't
3: touch that one. I didn't touch that one. I didn't like it. Ke-
2: it wasn't Brian
4: Kehoe in Merv. Mark
2: he sure Merv, was. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Can we talk about Merv. I mean, not really. They're tangentially related. I mean, no one. I mean, Les is not necessarily in that band, but uh, they're just friends. I mean, honestly, they've got some really good songs. "Feeding Time on Monkey Island" is a great record. It has uh, such hits as "Unabomber" um, and uh, the rest. Uh, but yeah, they're they were just an absolute powerhouse when I saw them live. Um, they absolutely won the entire audience over.
4: Yeah, Merv was just more more buddies from the art scene in the early '90s. Man band called Merv, M.I.R.B. And uh, they have a weird concept album called The Cosmodrome, which I think should be listened to just to hear how weird it is. Uh, Mark Haggard's on a few Playpool projects, but then, yeah, this other guy, Brian Kehoe, is on a few of them. Four Foot Shack by Duo de Twang, I love it. Uh, it's fun. Eric, I'm surprised you didn't listen to it. I mean, I don't, like I don't like the name. I
3: don't like the name. I just didn't. <laughs> Didn't try it.
4: Well, it's Didn't try it. all it is. It's it's just the two of them playing stripped down like jug band versions of covers and Primus or less Claypool type songs. And it's got, you know, it's got a version of Winona's big brown beaver on there. It's got Hendershot. It's got Allison changes, man in the box. It's got Jerry was a race car driver. Staying alive. It's staying alive. Yeah, Amos Moses. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely like, it's, it's the doom ticka-doom <laughs> hillbilly, doom doom don't hillbilly hillbilly less staying
2: alive staying alive <laughs> I mean, oh yeah well, I yeah. think it's good it, it's, it's it's a gorgeous. fun one it's definitely like not strictly bluegrass like type of music but uh, it, it's not bad it's, it's I would I would love
4: to see it live uh, yeah. I'd love to see it live at a dive bar near a swamp yeah and the other one I think is really good Uh, probably his best non primus project, in my opinion. One I would love to see live, even if it wasn't related to Les Claypool, is the Claypool Lennon Delirium, yes, which is Les Claypool and Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son.
2: Those that is fantastic. So, they they talk about two two vocal styles that really go well together. Yeah, it's crazy how good that stuff sounds chocolate and peanut butter. So, yeah, yeah,
4: the way their voices together are amazing. Yeah, and it definitely, you know, Sean Lennon kind of sounds like his dad but it does does. it's got a touch of Beatles psychedelia and then less well done uh bass work yeah a lot of great keyboards on them very spacey and cosmic sounding but they're still songs they're all still songs it's not jammy it's all songs it's uh yeah two albums the monolith of phobos and uh south of reality
2: reality. i think i like south of reality a little bit more though um, yeah, they're
4: yeah. both
3: good, though, and it's like... Uh, yeah, Sean Lennon does sound like his dad. Uh, I, I guess, like... I, I, I barely listened to his... I uh, remember his Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys sure. label. He had an album on that, and I remember him on uh, Handsome Boy Modeling School, but I, I guess I never realized how much he sounds like his dad when he's going to full psychedelic mode. And it worked... I mean, it's like kind of like if... If the Beatles really leaned into John's uh, acid trips towards the end, that's what you get here. Plus, plus less uh, uh,
4: uh, hot, less injection. It's it's great. I I really enjoyed both. Yeah, of I think I think less yeah. sounds really engaged. I don't think they sound tossed off at all. I don't think you qualify those as you know. Sometimes side projects get a lesser than stable or label on them. I don't think
3: I think no really good out No, I think it's better than I think it's better than latter Primus work. Easily. Oh, I agree. easily. Yeah, yeah
2: easily. I'll, it kind of I'll put like <laughs> it's. They live in the same neighborhood as like the Mars Volta, a little bit for me. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah I
4: thought
3: a little
2: less uh, spacey because later Mars Volta records are definitely like Scooby-Doo and the Haunted House, but
4: um, <laughs> they're a little bit more leisurely too. I don't think that, they're not mid-paced songs, but they they have like a casual groove to them. This uh, the, the, the Claypool Lennon
2: like, album yeah but yeah no that's a good call Steve I'm glad that you uh, we didn't skip over that I thought we were obviously this is uh, turning into um a march to Helm's Deep um so <laughs> it's a three-part episode i tell you that much no it sure is <laughs> um so I think uh now's a good time to just uh, get our personal rankings now necessarily these aren't our uh favorite rec these aren't what we consider you know the Bible of what uh, Primus is all about, but I, for my personal, so what we'll do, we'll start at the bottom at number nine of just the studio albums now, and then we'll go to the top and we'll just do round robin. So starting with number nine, Steven, what's your least favorite Primus record?
4: I certainly think this is going to be the same for all three of us. But yeah, let's hear it. Primus and the chocolate factory with the fungi <laughs> ensemble.
2: All right. Yeah. Eric, number nine.
4: Yep can't add to it that yeah it's it's
3: it's problematic
2: number nine for me is also primus in the chocolate factory so there we go so steve number eight the desaturating seven is my number all right all right eric you're at number eight
3: uh uh, green naugahyde it's some okay songwriting but it just sticks in this weird trebly world that is not engaging to me
2: my number eight is actually anti-pop Whoa! Yeah, it's, uh, it's far down there, folks. I just feel like it's, uh, it's not Primus. It's, it's trying to be something that they're really not. And um, I, as much as uh, some of the other records are uh, not as engaging, this one, I feel, is just so off-putting, even though it's got some classics on there. But I just I feel it's a mess. So there you go. Okay, Steven, number seven. Green High. Eric? Number seven. Uh, that's my
3: that's my is seven.
2: Desaturating seven is okay, and uh, desaturating seven is also my number seven as well. Right, 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 right. Steven, number six. Tales from the Punch. Okay, all right. Uh, Eric, number six. Interesting.
3: Yeah, my number six is anti-pop. I uh, I I think it has its merits. I think it shows why people were it shows their appeal, but it also shows. Uh, why they were never meant to be uh, uh, a new metal band. And uh, it's it's a very contradicting album, but I also find it fascinating. And I actually find it very catchy from start to finish. So it gets a little higher than those lowered
2: albums. My number six is uh, The Green Naga I, uh I It's trying to do something that uh, uh, I appreciate it for, but it's just, I, I don't know. It's It's not bad. I mean, it's kind of nearing the, the middle ground for kind of the demarcation between the good records and okay records. And then of course the bad ones that are sitting at number one, uh, bottom Steven, number five. Somehow.
4: I I don't know how this happened, but, uh, the heart wants what the heart wants. Somehow antipop crawled up to my number five.
2: All right. Okay. Uh, do you have any reasons for that? Uh, anything that you, just like
4: what I was saying earlier, I don't think it's as disjointed as it is, as, as it's reputation. And everybody says that not just the three of us or Les Claypool himself even admits it.
2: I mean, I'll be honest. Number, f- uh, Annie pop over tails from the punch ball. Okay. All right. I I'm know. I'll, I'll show
4: my math next week. A little when we talk, I'm not going to, the uh, tails in the punch ball. Isn't going to, you know, it's not going to become a controlled bleeding for God's sakes. But, um, it's uh, a, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I think, I think antipop pop has less filler, which I, I know neither of you agree with, but I just, for my personal taste, for some reason, anti-pop isn't as bad as its reputation. And also, I think it's a pretty good album. I don't you know. Go.
2: All right. It's just, hey, it's just no, it's how it happens. The heart wants what it wants. Uh, I said,
4: like I said, the closing track brings the average up quite a bit.
2: Eric, number five.
3: Yeah, Punchbowl goes to my number five. Uh, just right in the middle. It's got some all-timers that we'll talk about in the next episode. Um it's also got some, some things uh, around Primus that I'm not crazy about. So we'll get into that.
4: We call those things Year of the Parrot.
2: <laughs> uh, my number five is actually The Brown Album. Um, I feel that it's smack right in the middle of their discography. Um, I do like this record quite a bit, but uh, unfortunately it is surrounded by ones that uh, hold a little bit closer to the heart to for me. So, uh, Steven, number four,
4: this is where it gets tough, but it's also easy because I mean, like I said, like at times, pork Soto is my number one album. My favorite primus album could be my favorite primus albums. I could slot them. But I think this is the true top number four, Mm -hmm. be sailing the seas of cheese. Uh, right. Yeah. Very consistent record. Sounds just like a double album to Pork Soda to me. Um, like I said, Eleven and Is It Luck kind of irritate me, but I mean, it's got all-timer songs. It had radio hits. It's got a high energy to it. It's uh, those damn new tweakers in this American life alone make it the top of the charts. That's right.
3: From Ira Glass's mouth himself. Eric. Uh, yeah, I actually also of Cheese for me. It has, as I said before, it has my favorite... Primus song, probably, Damn or Tweakers. It has a lot of really solid, like songs that just like perfectly encapsulate early to mid 90s, like funk metal, which is was a thing. And I love that this it, it, it paints that picture. And then it has some stuff I don't really care about. Um, it's got a great weights performance on here as Tommy the Cat. It's fun. It's great. Top four.
2: My number four is the record we'll be talking about in our next episode, which is Tales from the Punch Bowl, And uh, we'll talk about that record in further depth later. But uh, that's my number four. Steven, number three.
4: I like that uh, the album we picked for the podcast was not our absolute favorite Primus album of all time. I think it'll be a better conversation. Yeah. Yep. My number three is Pork Soda. Like I said it, it and Sailing the cheese sees the cheese pair well together, great instrumentation, good production, uh consistent song quality uh great sequencing. I think it's actually a very well sequenced record. Pork soda is easy to put on, listen from start to finish.
2: Eric number three
4: that's my brown album uh it's
3: too long and it has uh, a couple low points on it but overall you have a uh, production quality that shows you primus probably one of the most complex composers of modern rock doing a garage band album uh, and some of les claypool's most mature writing and um, i did not i would not have ranked it three when it came out that is a recent just kind of taking it all in that's where it is now
2: my number three is Sailing the Seas of Cheese. Um, I will agree with uh, Eleven and Is It Luck, but there are some moments on that those particular two songs that uh, do it for me. Um, but, uh, Eleven yeah. has
4: a great opening. It has a great <laughs> opening.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I yeah, Sailing the Seas of Cheese, that's um, such a strong record. Those damn blue collar tweakers is, uh, oh, it's just a thing of beauty.
4: I mean, Lair, Lair doing the guitar part that sounds like a, uh, like a like a, tra- like a train engine or yeah. something. Isn't that great? It's just yeah. that's so good.
2: Yeah, and like that. Doo, doo,
4: doo, doo, yep.
2: doo, doo, doo. Um,
4: yeah. Uh,
3: Steve, number uh, two, Stephen. Steve, sorry. How many uh, blue collar tweakers did you say you have at your
4: your general work, uh, work site? The ratio, the ra- the ratio right now is like a. 12 tweakers to eight non-tweakers. I can't remember. What like. oh, no. <laughs> oh,
3: whoa. When yeah. it flipped. Yeah. No, I
4: I just love the, the premise way, of that that song. It's the actually, way on, on a, on a large project like that, you've got your guys that you, you bring in that are trained and they do it for a living. So that's like, you know, eight to 10 guys. Uh, and then you've got to get temps in to do like some of the grunt work. And that's where you're going to get all your tweakers. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think
3: it's very specific what that song is about, but it also kind of like, it just hits into like heartland themes of America. It's, it's great.
4: Well, shoot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, doing a, doing a large project for a lumber mill in Sonora. (laughs) Definitely. That's a, that's that song. I see that song at least once a week. Number two. Number two. My number two is the Brown album for all the reasons I said earlier. And for what Eric stated uh, just a few minutes ago.
2: No. Yeah. I mean, uh, I completely understand. Eric, number two.
3: Uh yeah, Pork Soda. That was my intro to Primus. I liked uh My Name is Mud, and I liked Mr. Kringle, and that's what got kind of got me into them to get the albums. And uh it is a very well realized album. And uh it sounds great, and uh it has uh it has its dark moments, which uh I think uh less balances his silly hillbilly stuff and his in his dark kind of serious metal stuff perfectly it's it's a it's a great great album number two
2: my number two is very much likely your both of yours number one and that is frizzle fry um i think that it obviously is an all-time record i mean it is near perfect if not perfect it's just the production sometimes Uh, feels me wanting a little bit more warmth, a little bit more tonality, uh, especially on the drums. Um, But there is no doubt the songwriting is so strong. Every song that whenever they play any of these tracks uh, absolutely just set the house on fire. It's uh, Frizzle Fry is my number two. You can believe it. And so I think that's a good segue for you to now tell me that your number ones are Rizzle Fry. There you go. I mm-hmm. mean, that
4: the, the title track alone, that bass. Bound, 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 bound.
2: When uh, Barrington starts to breathe.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He might just take us all away. Yeah. And then, and then <laughs> solos <laughs> and breakdowns. But we went into it a lot in depth, which sounds like a few hours ago now. But yeah, uh, yeah just the songwriting's tight. The performances are tight. They got to hone those songs live for a while before they put them in the record. And it's uh, they didn't rest in their laurels. I mean, they put another album out just the next year after that. Um, but I just did. Uh, I think it's just incredibly consistent. It's consistent, consistent, consistent. That's the word for it. Every song on that album could be someone's favorite primus song, I think. And uh, yeah, Harold and the Rocks too. That song is just way up there for me. That and John the Fisherman. John the Fisherman takes me to a special place few songs take me.
2: For me, it's uh, my number one uh, personal favorite is Pork Soda. Um, when I was going to be doing a Primus song, uh, record, I was considering doing this one instead of uh, Tales from the Punch Bowl, but I'll get into my reasons why I selected Tales from the Punch Bowl. Um, but uh, Porks. Really wanted to just. Go in depth on glass sandwich. Right? I get it. Hey man, when you're uh, talking about going to a, you know, one of those nudie but places, yeah, no, but pork soda is great. I mean, um, the the everything. I feel like the band is extremely like clicking. Um, it, the production is on point, and it's just, I don't know, it has a special place in my heart. Even the ridiculous songs like. The title track Pork Soda, um, how it ends with Hail uh, Santa, it just it's all creepy. It's just like this weird banjo and like this. This is what the cow does. Um, It's like the ravenous soundtrack. It's great. Yeah, there's just some unsettling parts about that where there is humor, but there's also just this darker side to that record. And um, there I don't know. It's just just for me. That's that's the record for me. Uh, but there you go. There's our rankings. I didn't really see too much controversy. Uh, controversy.
3: Do I get to uh, talk about my number one or or, or no?
2: <laughs> well, uh, your number one was Frizzle Fry, wasn't it? Right, it was. But I didn't okay, then go ahead, tell it. me why no, no, no. you I you selected it. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were just echoing what you and Steve were agreeing upon. It's true.
3: It. It's true. I just, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. All I was gonna say was what I like about that is that album is it, it's very weird. It's actually very like. Counterintuitive to what I usually like about music in the in the sense that I generally throw all my chips into production and this doesn't have it. But um what I like about it is like Primus was still very much like they had one foot in this weird Bay Area metal world. Um, which kind of meant like they had to have these, like they knew like I they had their own little pressures to have like hooks and like big epic moments and, and 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 solos and and uh i think it really worked and they and they made it make sense with their weird bonkers goofy world building that they were doing but it still made sense in separate songs and i don't know I, for that it's a very special moment for them and eventually they'd get to just just do their own thing in their own little bubble uh very quickly but but in that the the pressures of their 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 little community they were a part of i think Really helped what they were doing.
4: I also it, it it holds a place in my heart for at that time in my youth when we were, you know, Primus was one of our uh, friendship bands, for lack of a better term. We also had our our movies that we were getting into, and Evil Dead Two was when we would watch over and over again. And them mentioning Evil Dead in the lyrics in that uh, that album always healed to me. I thought that was awesome.
2: Yeah. And there's our rankings and three hours of Primus content. And we haven't even talked about a record track by track. So another mini series is going to be in the books. Um, we hope that you at least enjoyed this uh, uh, crash course in Primus lore. Um, but join us next time when we dissect and get our captain hats on for tales from the punch bowl uh it will be an entertaining talk i guarantee it or your money back uh but for now i bid you fond farewell this has been mark eric steven and we hope that we brought you closer to captain china
1: So in the end,
0: Slaughter and Greenie finally succumbed to the ways of Harold, and in doing so, each cave just lit a little bit of his soul away. What a couple of dumb shits. <laughs>